morning. Saturday, July 2nd. Here we are. New quarter. Song remains the same. Nothing's changed. People sending me DMs and questions. So, George, have you changed your mind? Do you think the market's bottoming? When are you going to turn bullish? I don't know. Nothing's changed. Actually, it has gotten worse. Um, the only bull market I see is the bull market and people trying to call the bottom. The investing public still hasn't gotten the memo. Um, they've yet begun to sell in earnest. And I think we've got a long way to go. People can try to talk about sentiment all they want. And there's wild misuse of sentiment data. People cherry pick the surveys that they want to focus on. Various prime brokerage firms send out their, uh, prime brokerage departments send out their own surveys of exposures and whatnot. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at hedge fund exposures, that's what I like to point to the de-risking. It's only back down to where it was maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, it's lower than it was in the last three or four years, but you'd expect everyone to be, you know, maximum invested in, against the backdrop of the most irresponsible monetary policy in recorded history. But if you look at, if you zoom out a little bit, and if you consider that, you know, if you want to say, okay, 45% net long is a new flat, oh, okay, fine, everything's fine. So yeah, professionals are de-risked to some degree, but they're still getting destroyed. Just look at the year-to-date performance figures for hedge funds. Individual investors have hardly sold anything. Hope Shrub comes in the room today. He's always got the the uh, the weekly flow date. I have it somewhere. The stuff that comes out from uh, Merrill Lynch does Bank of America. Merrill Lynch does a great job with that. You know, and, but it's the selling they've done is minimal compared to trillion plus they put in the market uh, last year. And as we've been uh, constantly discussing in these rooms, I mean, these, these are things you don't see at a bottom. <laughs> And so I think you have a situation that's really one of you have a bunch of fully invested uh, bears in a time when liquidity is evaporating. And we haven't done a room. It's been eight days. The last room we did uh, was with the great Julian Brigden, who I see is in the room today. And I hope Julian will weigh in with maybe some of his updated views. He's had the playbook. He's been right as rain. And it's getting hot and getting hotter kind of curious and see if Julian's got any updated views on his view of the July CPA, CPI number. So the song remains the same. Inflationary pressure is okay. If we get a recession, fine, they'll abate. But will they come down sufficiently to the point where the Fed can really ease? Who knows? Anyway, market's not cheap. I think we're on the cusp of earnings collapsing, just collapsing. We've got a, a bear market in margins. Profit margins are well above trend. Liquidity is evaporating, and the public's all in. What could possibly go wrong? Or more appropriately, what could possibly go right? Uh, I was out yesterday, so I didn't have a chance to look that critically uh, at the uh, market um, action. We've got good friend Tom Thornton, who's a good, good friend, one of the sharpest cookies out there, a good friend of this room, the proprietor of um, Hedge Fund Telemetry. It's a product that you know I read every day, and I suggest all of you do as well. And I'm sure if you reach out to Mr. Thornton, he will. Tom will take care of you. 
I don't know. We'll have to come up with a new uh, discount code for this weekend, Tom, a July 4th special. Again, I have no commercial relationship with Tom. I just try to point people in the direction of uh, market analysts and sages who I deem uh, know what's going on. I just look at this room right here. It's unbelievable. I mean, just look at this room. There's a re you know, I keep saying it sounds very self-serving. We have the best spaces on Twitter. No, we do. Look at this room. Just look at it. I'm just going to not in any order, the order I see them appearing on here in the top row on down. We got Thornton, Brigden, Shrub, Three Aces, KFAB. I mean, I can just keep going. This is sick. I see we have uh, my friend Stefan, and we got Carpathia, and Bachline, Stefan. I mean, this is just. <laughs> guys don't have to come here to listen to me. It's just, this is, we have first mover advantage. This is where all the smart guys hang out. Anyway, enough of that. So um, that was a hell of an end of the month, end of the quarter rally we had there. So um, now we're back to our regular schedule programming. Um, and again, I and, and you'll correct me, uh, Tommy. I can't remember if it was Jesse Livermore who said it, but you know, it was, it's not it's not being on the, the the bull side or the bear side of the market that counts. It's being on the right side. You just want to call them like you see them. I know many people think I'm a perma bear. I do have glass half tendency and uh, glass half empty tendencies. I won't dispute that, but my public profile in terms of uh, in FinTwit, I've only been out there for you know a year or so uh, and started on these spaces back in December. And yes, I've been unashamedly and, and uniformly bearish. It's not my disposition necessarily, but I call them like I see them. And uh, when the weight of the evidence turns otherwise, I will change my mind. You know, I was making a um, presentation to somebody the other day, or I was having a discussion with someone actually, and I, you know, I, I put a line down a sheet of the paper, and it's positive, negative, in, in anything you look at, strength and weaknesses, and you try to examine the weight of the evidence. And one of the things I found really arresting was I just made a list of who I deem to be the smart guys, and what are they saying? And whether it's you, Thornton, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, I'm just it is what it is. You or Julian or Aces or Shrub or Michael Belkin or Michael Kentowitz or John Roke or I mean the list goes on. Larry Jettolo, Michael Howe. It's like who do I turn to when I lose my bearings? Who do I look to for guidance? And I just wrote down what are these people saying? And of the sort of eight or ten guys I read that I respect, they're all saying the same thing. Mostly the same thing. Now, before someone says, oh, George, contrary opinion, you're in your own echo chamber, and see, everyone's bearish, so it's time to be bullish. Julian, I think I'm using the word uh, correctly, bollocks. This is a very obscure, small sample set of financial perverts that's meant as a compliment. People with variant or deviant perceptions. This is not the crowd. The crowd is CNBC. The crowd is Jim Cramer. The crowd is the street telling you to you know, stay the course, stay with 60-40 portfolio. Can't sell, can't time the market. If you time the market, if you sell, then you got to figure out when to get back in. If you sell, you're going to have to pay taxes. That assumes you have any gains left on which to pay taxes. Or my favorite one, if you sell, it's going to mess up your asset allocation decision. Again, the old line about how do you cook a frog, how do you boil a frog, just turn the water up slowly, the temperature up slowly, so the frog doesn't jump out. That's what's going on here. 
It just blows my mind. It's it's great. You, you go away from the screen for a day or two, so you can just breathe and you know be with nature or watch the ocean or whatever. Get your head out of the screen because I'm an addict. Most of the people in this room are addicts. And you come back and you get a clean look at it, and it's like, oh god, you see things maybe you didn't appreciate before. Maybe you're more bullish, maybe you're more bearish. And you walk away from it, and it's like, oh my god, it's like these folks just don't get it. So, you know, I, I was going through Twitter this morning. It's like, oh, this is the worst first half ever for equities, you know, and whatever, since 1932. Or, oh, this was the worst six months ever in the history of recorded bond markets. All this stuff, people citing price and they're citing sentiment. I don't know if the CNN fear and greed indicator can go negative. All right. I'm joking. But they're, 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 talking, about, they're talking about sentiment and polls and price. Again, I like you know I bastardized that line from Oscar Wilde. I mean, talking, he wasn't talking about the stock market, and we can go into the full meaning of the text. I know I've taken a liberty with it, but I love using it, even misusing it. You know, they, they know the, he he knows the, the the price of everything and the value of nothing. So just because prices have gone, gone gone down doesn't mean they're cheap. Yeah, they're less expensive than they were before. But everyone's talking about price action and flows. And the price action, you know, this is something we talked about a couple weeks ago. I think, Shrub, you were the one who made the point, uh, and I want you to weigh in on this. Talking about how we've never seen all this before, anything, seen anything quite like this before. It's the speed of these moves. It's the speed of these moves, which is so worrisome. It's clearly catching people off sides. Vol was underpriced. People get caught with their pants down. And so I just think it's going to get worse. And why am I saying that? I'm not trying to play on people's fears. We're not coming in the second half of the year. And once people see that prices, you know, they went down, but you know what? They're not coming back. At least when you got hope, that's something. But in a momentum market, the longer something doesn't go up in a momentum-driven market, the more likely people are to give up. And so there will be redemption. There will be redemption. It's just not the kind that Chase Coleman wants. I think you're going to see a massive, massive, epic, record-breaking for the history book flow of redemptions out of hedge funds in the second half of this year. And these hedge funds are going to be revealed for what they truly are. Compensation schemes. Beta-chasing beta merchants. Pure, pure, pure beta, no alpha. You know, Kathy Wood, and I'm sure someone can give me the more updated figures. Kathy Wood, she got, what, another 800 million bucks or something like that over a period of a week or two? Again, things you don't see at the bottom. I've said before, tongue-in-cheek, only half believing it. You know, the, the trick is the market never lets you get in on the way up. Uh, you know, kind of relentlessly went up for years with no real big correction. Leave COVID out of it. That was a one-off. And what if the trick now is the market's basically not going to let you get out? You see, what's really instructive, what I like about getting squeezed in the short side is you see what the market's got. It's like trying to roll a, a boulder or a, a big snowball up a hill. You only can get it up so far and then they tire and it goes back down again. So I love seeing these squeezes because the price discovery you get in the squeeze shows you that the other guy's other side's got nothing, nothing. This market won't bottom until you got capitulation. 
until you see the public selling. So, on that happy note, so Mr. Thornton, it's good to see you again. We were together um, eight days ago. We co-hosted the room with Julian, and hopefully Julian will uh, weigh in here for a bit of his updated views. But it's been a month or two, I think, Tommy, since you were the man on the spot. Always like to hear your thoughts, and so you've been a very generous contributor to this room, sharing your wisdom with uh, with the folks. And so I thought it'd be a good good occasion to uh, just give you the mic and sort of reset where we are, third quarter. Um, lots happened. Kudos to you for once again annoyingly calling the counter trend uh, rally. My hat's off to you. You're really good at that. I don't know if you sold everything in time. I'll let you tell tell the folks what you did or what you're thinking now. But that was then. Now is now. So let me tee it up with a couple of questions and go with it where you want. So we got the rally we're looking for. And again, I don't try to. You're much better at the short term wiggles and jiggles than I am. I, I don't try to get in that game. Yeah, I, I know there's a month end nonsense and the rebounds. I get all that and. The mark indicators go negative. I know I'm, I'm joking, whatever. And so you're really good at that. You like the dumpster dive. Me, I'm too lazy. I just try to stay with trend. And so I'm just curious. I guess a good place to start off, two questions. One, you, after your successful call of scalp, getting a scalping roll right, where are you on that call? Uh, you still got chips on the table. Have you taken some off? Are you willing to go short? And then secondly, just standing back from the day-to-day, week-to-week stuff, which is so – those are the shiny objects people like to focus on. What are sort of bigger picture observations that are noteworthy to you that you think the crowd is not focusing on? So without further ado, Tommy, the floor is yours. Always good to hear from you. Welcome, my friend. Take it away. Hey, George. Uh, thanks uh, for having me. And uh, hello to everyone. Uh, happy Saturday. Happy Fourth of July weekend for everyone in the U.S. And uh, for everybody in uh, Great Britain, uh, enjoy the British Grand Prix. Um, sorry, we uh, broke off a few couple hundred years ago. So um, the market. Yeah. OK, let me just update where I see things now. It's not. First of all, it hasn't gotten any easier. It's actually gotten a little harder because uh, when I've found a couple of opportunities to buy things where I see with um, the plethora of indicators that I use, uh, the bounces are becoming a little bit uh, more shallow. And I, I'm looking at the S&P futures uh, for this year, and I'm looking. I'm just counting the bounces. Uh, I see seven and a quarter, seven and a half, twelve uh, percent, four and a half, ten percent, and the last was eight and a half percent off the um, the lows and viable lows. And and the thing is, I thought that this last one would be somewhere in the ten to fifteen percent level, and I, I use various time frames on some charts and I, I like to look at the in, in choppy markets like this. I, I like to look at uh, the 60 minute time frame charts and those have worked really well because I think that that's almost the uh, attention span that this market has right now, uh, the attention span to good and bad news. And so that's uh, those have worked well for me. I, I again, I, I um I will be honest. Uh, I had uh, the middle of the month from the tenth to the seventeenth. I had a really miserable time, and I took some I took some losses. Um, I I, I can't. I, I took some losses, and at that point, I I actually did some capitulation on a few long ideas that I've been I was holding on to. Uh, at the I did buy, uh, and I 
from the 27th and 28th, right before we really started to fall apart, I took 18 positions off. And I'll tend to run about 30 to 35 positions long and short. But I'm now with, and I've kept a high level of cash. I'm now at 50% cash. And, you know, one of the things is, I look, I'm, I don't manage money for a hedge fund anymore. I don't, I'm not a trader at a hedge fund. I manage money for myself and with all the people that I work with, a lot of them can't, can't short stocks and they're not going to be as aggressive uh, as I would be. Uh, So I recommended a fairly high level of cash and I don't see capitulation, George, as you've talked about. And one of the better charts and the better, uh, research reports that I get every week or two is the Bank of America flow show. And they've been showing credit outflows uh, since uh, September 21. It really peaked at that level. Uh, The equity uh, outflows really hasn't uh, materialized. Uh, If you look at the Kathy Wood arc inflows outflows, that actually has shown uh, some outflows, if you look at it on a weekly basis over the last year, it actually had a really big weekly outflow this week. Um, you know, you're going to see the outflows really capitulate um, probably later this year. I'm thinking into the third and fourth quarter. The big thing that I'm looking at right now and um, outside of the CPI and the inflation data, which I think might, I mean, I, there's a lot of people that are in this oddly hopeful way, and Julian could probably um, uh, confirm on this, that they are thinking that if we get a little better inflation data, that that's bullish because the Fed's going to not raise rates. And But that's untrue. I think the Fed's going to con- continue. Uh, they've been completely clear about that. And if the market goes up, that's obvious they're not going to stop raising rates if the market goes up. They want financial conditions tighter. And with the stock market going lower, that um, tightens up financial conditions. So that's, it's almost this weird thing that I'm hearing, oh, well, you know, the CPI might be a little lighter. I don't think that's going to be enough for the Fed to turn. Uh, I don't think, uh, I mean, I'm looking at uh, Grant Williams sent out something to me, tweeted the Atlanta Fed has this negative GDP forecast. Okay, fine. That's coming down the road. But in the meantime, I don't see the Fed lifting off. They're just started QT as well. So they've got a long path to go. And there's really not much that I could see the Fed making a turn. And that's, that's actually what the bulls have held their head on. They're, they're, they're saying this is, this is what's going to turn the market that if the Fed slows down if they do 50 or 75 basis points that's not necessarily overly bullish enough for me the other thing again going back to x the inflation data it's all about the um earnings that that are coming out right now and um you know it's been talked about in this room that this has been the first bear market where we haven't seen earnings warnings and earnings guide downs as we have in the past because usually you get those at at peak levels where you see those are big surprises now we saw 
let's talk about a few of them. Uh, Nike uh, came out and they they missed their lowered China numbers. So people were expecting weak China numbers for the obvious reasons, but they also had weak uh, North American numbers and and guidance. And that I think was uh, something really scary in the sense that uh oh we're now seeing the consumer, which Nike is a really good barometer for the U.S. consumer they're starting to slow and the stock went down 10%. And I think that's, let's remember 10%. Now you had uh, restoration hardware. And I, and I will say this, there's a lot of CEOs out there that will just spin the same old happy talk despite the house on fire, you know, but look at the yard. It's, we have a beautiful yard outside. It's great. But your yeah, your roof's on fire. No, but the yard, we have a pool. It's, anyway, the point is Gary Friedman of Restoration Hardware gets my award for the CEO of the year. Uh, okay. I think he is a very, very smooth, good operator. He puts his money where his mouth is. He bought stock in, I think it was 2016 or 17 at, I think they may have split a couple times. I don't know. $25. I remember seeing him put a million bucks open market purchase into the market. This, the stock was, was garbage at the time. Nobody was really following it. Boom. It worked. And he's, and he sold stock at the highs and he's continued to sell stock, but he's been honest about the macro environment with inflation, with what's happening with margins. And he's, he, he's said it several times. He's been on two conference calls. They just guided down again. And he knows the stock's going to get hit. But here's the thing. Why I think he's a good guy is because when this thing bottoms, he's going to be the one putting his money where his mouth is and he'll buy stock. And he'll tell you, honestly. Now, Texas Instruments used to have management that would do that with semiconductors. Um, it's been a big turnover in, in their management. And now they're just a buyback machine like most of them. But you had Micron. They just came out and guided down. I think their revenues were expected around nine billion, and now they're like six to seven billion. That's a, that's a substantial guide down. It's really noticeable. But here's the thing: I saw analysts like uh, Mizuhu. Their analysts said, "Well, you know, maybe this is a good thing. It's going to reset. It's you know, fifty dollars is the book value. Uh, it's going to get people more involved in." in in the stock at this level well maybe but if we're just going into this cycle a semi-cycle that is going going down and semi-cycles go down when they cut capex so they are cutting capex so applied materials lamb research asml you look at those stocks in the last couple the last day they got mushed uh taiwan semi crushed so i think that we're we're starting to realize what is happening out here. And semis are a barometer of the economy as well. And they have an oversupply. Whoa, what happened to the semi, uh, you know, supply chain problem? Seems like that's not as big an issue, but they called it out on semi, uh, semis going into PCs and cell phones. Okay, well, those are, those are substantial. And the thing that I look at semis and cell phones and PCs, that also correlates with job growth or, or new hiring. A lot of times people will hire people and here's your new laptop, uh, here's your new phone. So if that's starting to slow, we're gonna probably see some macro 
slowness in hiring. And that's not something that's a quarter. That's not a quarter or two. That's a year long type of problem. So right now in the market, what I'm watching for are pre-announcements. We're going to have them. Okay. We've had, uh, I should mention Walmart target, um, uh, Kohl's the other day. I mean, they can't even sell themselves at a discounted price. Uh, they've they've guided down. They've said that there's big inventories. Inventories, when you have large inventories, you got to mark things down. That's going to hit margins. So that's not good. And that takes time to get through. And now you're coming into the important back to school season in the next couple of months. They're probably slashing orders with their suppliers. That's going to hit cotton prices. That's It all connects. So we're watching right now all of we're in the beginning of july we're all watching for what's going to happen with earnings and I, I, when i was on last time george I, I said just everybody watch watch out for jeffrey's earnings this week jeffrey's earnings came out at i think 41 cents their estimate was 53 cents the last three or four quarters they've done a dollar 20 to dollar 30 per uh, each quarter that cut in half by i mean actually it was cut you know, three quarters, 62%, it was down year over year. That's substantial. There's no deals happening right now on the street. There's no issuance. There are no M&A deals closing because they're getting pushed out because valuations are being questioned again. That's going to start to show up in JP Morgan, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, I think Blackstone substantially. These these companies are, they always start the quarter and how's the, you know, this earnings season, how's it going? It's going to be an utter disaster. The other thing is you don't have analysts lowering estimates fast enough. And that's going to be the problem if you show Goldman miss by multiples. Um, I think there's, there's real risk uh, to the downside. Uh, tech. You haven't really seen a big tech company in a while guide down. Uh, I mean, you did have Google and you did have Amazon, you know, give some, you know, not so great guidance, but they haven't guided down again. You haven't seen Apple guide down and they make phones that buy micron chips or other chips. Um, That could be slowing. Microsoft guided down because of, quote, currency. Maybe there's something more there. But these are the big cap names that we're going to have to watch. And I just, I think that this is the point of of this right now where it's going to be a battle over earnings. And I'll leave it at this. There's going to get a point to where things go down enough to where it's not so bad. It, get, it Things do get priced in enough. The bar is a little lower. I just don't think that's there yet. And I don't think people are expecting it. And that's a big problem. And, and uh, last thing, Tesla, they're supposed to come out with their deliveries. I don't know if they've come out yet today. I'm looking at my Bloomberg. I haven't seen it. But their deliveries have been slashed with the analysts by 30 to 40%. And it's pretty obvious, China and there's other things. But just like Nike, we're probably going to see a, a start to a, a, a lack of demand. So I'll leave it there. And um, sorry to bum everyone out no that's great that's a it's a terrific tour de force so and it gives us a lot of uh, ammo here to uh 
uh, to run with. So um, I went, one of the points you kept coming on, which we've uh, Michael Kantrowitz has made repeatedly and others in this room, I totally agree with. You know, the, 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 so far all we've really seen is the multiple compression that's been the, the multiple compression of, the, of, 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 this, of this move down. Uh, earnings estimates are only just starting to roll over. Uh, and I agree, I think from here it's going to be earnings. Um, and, you know, Michael Belkin was in this room uh, a little over a week ago. Uh, people may uh, recoil in horror at the full uh, extent of the projection. He was paying a number of $110 a share or something like that for 23. Street estimates are, you know, everything's always. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Michael Falcon was looking for an absolute wipeout in earnings. He was thinking that SP earnings could fall as much as 50% down to $110 a share for next year. That may be over the top, but directionally, it's great. The street, uh, let me move over to the window is that any better better now all right fine so yeah. I, I wasn't moving yeah. i don't know why 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 it went bad anyway so um i was just talking about how michael belkin you know was really in the vanguard looking for as much as a 50 percent decline in earnings for the s p next year that may be over the top but I think in terms of magnitude and direction, it's interesting. Against contrasted with, with street consensus, we've continued to see earnings estimates uh, drifting upwards. I mean, they just started to roll recently. But the streets, I don't know, 230, 240, something like that. And, you know, if we're in Vegas taking the under over under, uh, just, I'm just going to do simple napkin math. And I said, yeah, hey, you know what? Under 200, easy, not even a question. Uh, and with the S&P, wherever it is, a 3,700, 3,800, it's like, what are we talking about? There's nothing to discuss here. Um, so, you know, you want to play your napkin math, do 15 times 200 is 3,000, you know, plug in whatever numbers you want. Again, equities continue to represent return-free risk. Uh, valuations are not cheap, and earnings estimates are about to um, earnings estimates are about to get totally destroyed, in my opinion. So, Tommy, I think you're completely right. Fingering um, from here, it's the, it's the earnings uh, disappointment. It's going to set in. The other thing, too, I would observe, just listening to you talk, when the first guy does it, sticks his neck out, and, you know, it's, oh, we're going to have a bad quarter or whatever, they can get a mulligan, they can blame it on whatever they want, COVID, uh, you know, China, whatever. But once one of them does it, it gives air cover for the other ones to do it. So um, these guys run in packs. And so I would expect, not just because underlying uh, business is getting worse, but also because others have sort of set the bar, or lowered the bar, it's now okay for others to come out with, uh, with, with, with earnings disappointment. So I completely agree with you. I think earnings are the name of the game. Uh, and so that, that's one point. The other point is I saw we had uh, in ACES, we're gonna have, you, I need you to update your view on energy a little bit. And, and guys, you know what? Listen, we're all here just trying to help each other. Nobody knows. We're just trying to figure this out together. And I think we got something really special here in terms of all the disparate inputs we get from smart cookies and all parts of the markets and the economy. So, you know, ACES comes out with this idea, that, well, maybe energy prices are going to go down. And I kind of joined him in that call. And then Belkin, you know, two weeks ago, sounds pulls a fire alarm, get the hell out. And, you know, we get it right, we get it wrong. That's not the point. The point is people, hair gets set, gets set on fire. 
and aces i don't know if you had to have you know you had to call the cops and get special uh special protection or whatever but some of the sort of vulgar profane uncivil nasty discourse that goes on on twitter and i know you know i, I realize i run my mouth and, and i'm critical of other people but I really, I think it behooves everyone just to, to, to try to understand that we're, you know, we're in this together. We're trying to figure each other out. There's room for dis- differing, uh, differences of opinion. That's not the point. The point is people get butt hurt because you say something about a stock they don't like. And then they respond with an hominem. And people call me out for blocking, um, blocking people. I learned from the master, Mark Cahotes. And I hope, Mark, you're going to weigh in in a minute. Um, I just don't want to engage with these people. I'm giving people the benefit of my doubt. These are people I think are friends. And they turn on me like, you know, again, is that the right side? It's not the, it's, it's, it's not the bull side or the bear side of the market that counts. It's the right side of the market. We're just trying to make money. So win, lose, or draw. We're going to get some right. We're going to get some wrong. It just people would remain of good spirit and not resort to this ins- it's insane nastiness, which, which tends to pervade uh, Pervade Twitter. So, Aces, let me turn to you, and then I want to go to Bob Klein, and I want to go to Stefan. Aces, um, so you're kind of playing. You you laid it out a few weeks ago. You know, stocks went up against you a little bit, but you made the case. You made the call on energy. So you get a richly deserved victory lap here. You're too modest to take it. Don't take it, but just let me talk your book for you. Um, I guess, you know, tongue in cheek. Have the death threats slowed down because you've been proven right now? Like, has the oil crowd kind of gone quiet on you? And number one, it's tongue in cheek, you know, nasty comments. No. Or, or, no. or, 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 does the volume of, of the vitriol increase as, 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 as the oil stocks go down? What's been happening there? I mean, you can't even joke around with these guys. Uh, you know, they, you know, I stopped blocking them because you keep sending me DMs asking me to unblock people. So I just mute them now. But yeah, they've even attacked uh, Dr. Anas, who is the patron saint of oil and gas and has never, you know, uh, picked a side in his life. He just calls it the way it is. I mean, listen, you know, the problem that you have here, George, is that, you know, the bobbleheads on Wall Street and their machines, as you called it in Forbes the other day, created the everything bubble. And that everything bubble hit pot stocks, meme stocks, uh, you know, SPACs, EVs, real estate, used cars, lumber, everything. And they finally made it to the commodities. Okay, and there has been a big air pocket in commodities, as you know, and the people who know me know that that's the industry I'm in. Right. And, And the thing that, you know, was the most hilarious was when the bobbleheads were, t- you know, talking about copper and EV cars and the rest of it. In the meantime, only about five or six percent of worldwide copper consumption goes into electric vehicle batteries. So, and now copper is telling us in a definitive fashion that we are headed straight into a recession, right? And you know, if you look at, if you read the tea leaves on oil and gas, nobody's a bigger oil and gas bull than you and I, George. Uh, Long term. The policy, the broken energy policy is going to come back and take all of these people's heads off, uh, just like so many other times when the politicians were lying, cheating and stealing and the truth came back to haunt them. Ace is 100 percent. So just hold that thought for one second. Okay. Um, people, uh, I have my own way of moderating. People tend to like it. I'm doing this for a reason. I want to go down the energy rabbit hole right now. And Bob, if you wouldn't mind just 
holding your thought for a second, Bob Klein. I want to go to um, Javier, because Javier is, uh, for those of you who don't know him, good friend of this room, really switched on guy. He's in the Federal Witness Protection Program. He's in the industry, but he's really knowledgeable about energy. And when Javier speaks, I listen. He was also, I don't think he took as much heat as you did, Aces, because he's a nicer guy than you are, and he's not as public as you are. But he was, again, I think back over the last year, few few people were as bullish as he was. But about six weeks ago or thereabouts, Javier was like, well, I don't know about this. And he was right. And so when I was when I was looking at the charts and, again, thinking about, you know, who I pay attention to and what are the smart guys saying, Javier got my attention. So I'd like to for, I'd like to go to Javier if he could just weigh in on what, how, what he sees going in the energy markets. And Stefan, who uh, has been in this room a couple times, good friend of mine from Germany, he had some really insightful comments a few weeks ago about energy. He's been on the bearish side on energy. He's gotten that call right. So these guys have the cred to have an opinion right here. And so I'd like to have Javier first weigh in on energy, and then after Javier, go to Stefan. Javier, good to see you. What are you thinking, my friend? Javier, are you there? Maybe not. Aces, can you hear me? Hello? can hear you perfectly well, George. Yeah, I don't know where, where Javier is. Let's go to Stefan. Stefan, are you there? Can you, uh, can you weigh in on energy, Stefan? Are you there? Yeah, hi, George. Good to hear you. Yeah, good to hear you, Stefan. So, Stefan, you uh, a little bit early, but you got their energy call really right. I mean, getting direction right is hard enough. Getting the timing precise right is impossible. But it's come right in a spectacular fashion for you in the last few weeks. I'm just kind of curious in the overall scheme of things, as you see the energy trade going your way, how has your point of view changed all you? More bearish, less bearish, things got a lot more to go. Just talk, talk to me about energy a little bit. And, and again, Stefan, you know, went right, made the correct call on energy a little bit early, but boy, has it come right. And so, Stefan, can you just share with the room, what are your sort of updated views on energy right now? Thank you, Stefan. No, thanks, George. As uh, the last time I said, we are here on Twitter for entertainment, and we have seen a lot of spaces about oil and gas. And so as uh, Miller said, you, you have to look at hot and cold. And I think that oil and energy is still hot. So a lot of retail went into into these names you've seen Dan Loeb with EQT we see that Oxy is the best performing stock of the year and I think there there has to be something to let go yeah when when demand destruction is hitting the tape uh, when consumers getting weak which which we see over the last four weeks so and then will be the question that people not look at the current quarter you have seen it at Glencore Glencore released figures two weeks ago the stock is down 15% since then. And uh, sometimes I watch CNBC and when the ladies talk, they, Stephanie, for example, she's only talking about the current quarter. And I think there will be a moment when people will look forward as you should always do for the next 12 months. And then they will realize that, that these oil stocks and energy stocks probably will have different earnings in the next six to 12 months. And that is still my call. And, and thanks for letting me talk. And uh, I, have, I have two things. For me, which I said before, George, today, I'm a bit on holidays. There was one thing yesterday with colds. Um, I'm still on the negative side for Twitter. I think the risk reward is bad. If you look at, at Germany, there's a small company called Ed Pepper. They released a profit warning this week with weakening um, advertising revenues, advertising budgets get, get uh, 
taken out. And that reminds me about the first half of 2009, when we have seen Pro7 going to one. At that time, Sky Deutschland was trading also at one. And and this, these are the stocks which, which give you early sign of a recovery, but also give you a sign that, that companies are cutting budgets. So I think that Twitter is still trading, I would say, 30% too high if, if, uh, if you look at what's happening in the advertising industry. And my second point is, and it's maybe to give an open discussion, is about we have seen in November 2020 the BioNTech-Pfizer catalyst I read the book from Catherine Belton about Putin in the last weeks, and it's it's a great book. and And one thing for me, the the takeaway from the book was that that there, there are Russian elections in 2024. You see that Medvedev is extremely aggressive on Twitter, I guess for some reasons. So these guys cashing in a lot of money. My personal view is that uh, there will be maybe a solution at the point when these guys made enough money so a little bit like remember iraq the forces behind in the oil industry so i think personally that putin and and the other crowd will step down next year there will be some early elections maybe in russia and that could be maybe in this this kind of bearish market environment uh, maybe a positive catalyst in the second half so so it would be great to hear some views about, about twitter fair value about maybe a positive catalyst in the second half. And, and just beside that, if I look, I, I read a lot of fact sheets, monthly letters from, from funds. And when I read about in these letters, I see I see still like 20, 30% downside. What what you said, George, with redemptions, and I think these 20 to 30% is, is still in the market since 2017. These are the gains which are not taken from the table. And these, I think, maybe the gains which will be called in the next next weeks next quarter with redemptions thank you and yeah, yeah stefan thank you there's a lot to, to to talk about there but before we go i want to go to javier on energy before javier speaks and then bob klein one thing could you stefan um as you're probably aware it's mostly a north american crowd that's on this call and you're sitting where are you in the black forest where you are somewhere in germany could you share with us a little bit um What's going on with uh, changing European attitudes, particularly in Germany, with respect to ESG and coal? And like you know, you see the Greens, you know, now saying, "Oh, we got to start the coal plants up," blah blah blah, because people don't want to freeze their uh, butts off come this winter. Can you speak to what's happening with respect to energy and ESG policy, specifically? within the european sphere i mean we can all bs each other about oil demand etc cetera, etc cetera, but i just find it really interesting that things seem to be changing a little bit i remember last year having earlier last year having this discussion with people about well the german you know the germans are never going to change their opinion because you know esg is like a religion for them blah 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 but now people see the how much the energy prices go up and the, and the possibility of uh of, 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 of a cold winter etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and, and it may be that the tune is starting to change. So could you just talk a little bit about what you see, what, how, how the, the politics are changing? And in particular, the average man in the street, when they see their bills go up so much, maybe share with people what's happening to uh, electricity and energy bills. And how is the average German thinking about that? That'd be very, very helpful. Thank you, Stefan. It's a rough call, you know. I can tell you that Vinci, the French company, is quite active in in coal and um, and atomic energy 
construction and I think Vinci will get good orders. Um, we, we remember when we had the round table about Lanxess. Immediately I said Lanxess at 35 is is interesting because of four times EBITDA. Then we got the, the feedback from the others about, yeah, but the point when gas is uh, taken off the grid, um, Lanxess and all the chemical companies, they they will suffer. Then Lanxess announced another M&A deal and the stock short squeeze to, to 45. 0.72 is, is short, for example. From what I read in the daily newspapers, you know, um, inflation is at above 8%. I personally think that we kind of peaked already in in May. I don't subscribe the point that the, the German chemical industry is 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 lost at the to- moment of of when something gets gets taken off the grid. I think they're working on it. When you remember when you were studying, they always called me the German engineer when we organized parties. So remember that the German engineers and architects, they are quite well educated. I think they're working on it in the north. They, they're building the LNG terminals. When you read the book about Mark Rich with the, with the oil connection from, from Iran through Israel via Spain to Europe, I think there are alternatives you can use. But at the end, you know, all this war in Ukraine is, I think, it's my personal view is about money. When you read the, the book from Balau about the butler of London, I think you also come to the point there's a lot of corruption involved, a lot of cash flows for people who, who are really greedy and want that money. So, but to your question, you know, I think um, people holding back you know that the german savings rate is extremely high we have record saving rates i think there's some cushion uh, in the in the books we have um, i think personally still a very strong real estate market one of the best uh, in the past years i think it's also a bit overrated to, to to call down the real estate market because i think there will be also some kind of balancing out in the interest rate we have still a very, very defensive European Central Bank. Um, we will see how that works out, the strategy they have. So from, from my point to your question, I think um, I don't sign the point that that we are fully dependent on Russia. And that's I think it's a little bit overpriced in the market on the negative side. So be okay. careful with the, with the stocks which trading at three times, four times EBITDA. Yeah, yeah. And and many stocks in Europe, many cyclical stocks are now are back again, four times EBITDA where they were in 2020. And I think there's a as a good risk reward in the second half to start to look at them maybe in in October, November, like 2020. Thanks, Stefan. Really appreciate your input. If you could stay on stage, I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions. In the meantime, uh, Javier, if you're back, if you could unmute yourself, I guess we're having technical difficulties before. Javier, would love to hear your thoughts, particularly on energy. Uh, Javier, are you there, please? Happy Fourth of July weekend, buddy. Hey, good, Glad good to hear from. Good, good to hear from you, man. So what, what's going on? It's uh, I always am sitting up in my seat, very attentive when, when Javier speaks. I listen because you've got a front row seat, and uh, just talked. You know, we're a bunch of financial uh, pretenders here, but you're the real deal. You're in the markets. No, no, yeah. no, so, I'm not the real so what, deal. All right, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll stop. I'll stop with the pu- Yeah. So, so, Javier, what do you think on energy now, my friend? Well, I'm not really.
Aces, can you Javier, hear him? Now, Javier, you got, it, you got it in a bad way. Yeah, Javier, you're in the Matrix again. Maybe can you go out and come back, please? While Javier's trying to fix his connection, uh, let's go to Bob. Javier. Yeah, Javier, if you could please leave and come back. You're in the Matrix. If oil is seventy dollars in August and it is Hey Javier 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 oil is seventy dollars in August and oil is eighty dollars. Javier. Aces, can you hear me, Aces? Uh, the last sentence I heard him perfectly. Yeah, you know what? You know, you know, Javier, could you please leave the room and come back? You're in the matrix. We really can't hear you. Javier, please leave the room and come back. Bob Klein, um, my friend, good to see you. What's on your mind, my friend? Hey, George. Well, there are people more qualified than me to speak on energy, but I wanted to go back uh, to uh, Tommy Thornton's point about the Fed. And, 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 and what they're faced with. They just started QT and you know, people are already talking about them easing. And one of the flies in the ointment is that, as you guys know, uh, banks create money through credit expansion and bank loans are up 10% now year over year, total uh, bank loans, and they're, they've been accelerating. Now I know that they're gonna slow, uh, ultimately as the economy does slow, uh, and, and, and you know, loan growth will slow, but but for now, it's the loan growth has been very strong, and that means money growth is 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 not going to slow as quickly as the Fed would hope. So that's uh, going to make it a little difficult for them to uh, pull this off. Uh, you know, because they they would love to ease as as soon as possible, but bank loan growth is going to create a problem for them. So I want to make that point, but I have a question. An observation and a question for the old timers uh, in the room here. Uh, Jim Chanos has made the point that there are so many companies with harebrained valuations that are not making any money and won't make any money for for the foreseeable future. And just running down a quick list here to give you an idea what I mean: stocks we're we're short or have been short, uh, firm holdings, uh, firm. Uh, a dollar forty is the for 2025. Their estimated consensus estimate is to lose a buck forty a share. That's 400 million bucks. Coinbase estimated to lose 65 cents a share in 2024. That's a loss of 144 million. Carvana, which I know a lot of you guys are involved in, uh, 98 cent loss in 2024, 185 million. Robinhood. 2025 expected to lose money, 67 cents a share, 584 million. Uh, Rivian, three, 377 loss per share, 2025, 3.4 billion in 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 real dollars. So my point is, you know, I was shorting stocks during the dot com bubble, uh, and and I, you know, I remember that time pretty well, but my memory is fading a little bit. I I, I just. I think this is just bonkers. I, even compared to the dot-com bubble, you, you, you have substantial, you know, companies with substantial market caps. All these companies have at least 5 billion market cap that I listed, and they go up to 30, almost 30 billion. 
And so these are substantial market cap companies that, you know, for the foreseeable future won't make a nickel. And this just, just, just is mind boggling to me, just mind blowing that this is, this is occurring in the capital markets right now, even after uh, prices have come down a lot on these companies. So I just wanted, uh, you know, some of, some of you guys to weigh in, um, it, you know, in terms of your memory. I remember there were stocks like Pets.com, there was Webvan, and, you know, a lot of the crazies, the fringe kind of companies that had goofy valuations, but nothing like this. This is, this is just over-the-top mania. Uh, yeah, so, Bob, yeah, yeah, Bob, 100%, 100%. And for I did not pay Bob to say that the thing, is, you know, and what it speaks to go back to my earlier remarks about anchoring and people anchoring prices over where, where the peaks were, you know, uh, last year. Um, if you just came down from planet Mars and I didn't show you a chart of the stock and I just said, this is the business. And many of the names you mentioned, I've been short or I'm short. Um, and I didn't tell you what the company, I didn't tell you what the, what, the, what the chart looked like. I just said, this is what the company does. These are the sales, these are the earnings, these are the growth rates, the losses, not earnings. This is the valuation. And what would you pay for it? And you'd say it's complete insanity. Um, and so I couldn't agree with you more. And yes, um, you know, some of the names you, you talk about are just long duration, uh, the proxies for long duration assets, you know, think, think, you know, 30 years, zero coupon bond or the hundred year Austrian zero coupon bond. So they're going to and, and they're not as earnings driven because they're more valuation driven. So even in the context though, of rates coming off, if they do we get a recession, I mean, the 10 years sold off the last few days, it doesn't really matter that much because they're coming, they're coming, they're falling from such a high precipice. I completely agree with you. You're 110% correct. And so, I see Cantro's in the room, and he's the man with all the numbers, and he's smarter. He's, he is the smartest guy in the room, and so I'm sure he's got opinions about this. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think those things have a long way to fall. And what people need to remember: it's not just the valuations uh, and the poor earnings prospects for a lot of the companies you're talking about. It's the sociology of ownership. You look at the shareholder structure. You look who owns all that crap. It's you know a lot of the uh, more aggressive tire cup funds own that own that rubbish just go through i went through the exercise of going through tiger global d1 lone pine etc cetera, etc cetera. and then and then the kathy wood and all her followers the wrong people own these stocks and they got huge unrealized losses so just from a supply demand and not to mention from a supply demand standpoint a lot of cases um you know one of the tricks that many of these companies played was the tight float game and I can go through the numbers on, on Robinhood or Coinbase if people want want it just from, from memory. I mean, Coinbase, Robinhood came public uh, last summer. And I think there was, I think only 15% of the, of the, of the company was, was was floated. Came public in the mid-30s, went to like 80. I think it's 8 today or something like that. But the point was, um, that was a hot deal. That high valuation was sustained by dint of the fact that the float was so small. And as the unlocks took place, there was a small unlock in the fall. I think there was a convertible bond. But the real, the real uh, kicker was, I remember calling, I don't like to make individual stock picks, but last November, actually last August, and then I reiterated at the end of November, um, I'm not trying to be a jerk and take a victory lap, just you can look it up, it's in my Twitter feed. Um, I reiterated the Robin Hood short, I think it was around 27, late November last year, because an unlock, and you'd say, oh, my God, are you, are you sure? Yeah, no, these numbers are correct. 
the unlock on uh, Robinhood, I think if there were like 800 million shares outstanding, they did an unlock of like 550 million, like on December 1st of last year. So all the poor retail folks who, you know, didn't read the fine print, the thing comes, gets IPO at 15% of the float. And then a few months later, you've got another 70% of the float being dumped on top of you. Forget about fundamentals. Like that alone is a trick that, um, you know, the underwriters play. And, you know, is it, is it legal? Yes. Is it, is, it, is it unethical? Should the laws be changed? Yes. This is just one of the tricks that uh, the companies and underwriters engaged in together to really jam evaluations. And so I guess what I'd add to you, I'm, I'm going to stop on a rant here. It's the, rel- the relevant point I want to make. I'm, I'm agree with everything on the fundamentals. The key point I want to make on top of everything is the ownership structure of these companies. The wrong people own these stocks. And fundamental value is far, far lower. So I think it's just going to be, you're going to get tax loss selling too as we get in the second half of the year. It's going to be a complete nightmare. Let me just stop there. Um, can't hey, throw George. Available. So, sorry, hey, go ahead. George. Yeah. I just yeah. want to mention one thing. Yep. When we talk about market sentiment, uh, I've never seen anything in my life, uh, and I've been through a few cycles, where uh, mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, uh let's say people on television, let's say uh, asset classes, uh, they're, they're down substantially. They're crushed. I mean, eviscerated their reputations. Uh, but the enthusiasm for all this stuff remains super high. I mean, people are still trying to buy the bottom in ARC funds, and they're still trying to buy... It, Bitcoin and cryptos, and is it a good time to buy now? I mean, look, it's going to take a long time if these ever come back, and I still think that there's a lot of downside left until 100%. we see 100%, those people, in, until we see those asset classes go go away. I mean, that's or they just become out of the uh, everyday mainstream financial media conversation. That's but, I mean, Tommy, hundred percent, Tommy, hundred percent. Listen, Tom, Tommy, yeah. Tommy, hang on one second. So, Tommy, the everything bubble has everything else is blown up, and now that crowd is in in the funds. It's, so it's just the same everything bubble has made it now to passive funds, and they're next. Yep. Well, All right, so that's, that's been talked about a lot, and you know, until we see wholesale liquidation of. Right. Some of the passive funds. I, I still see funds being created. Oh, sorry, George. No, no worries. <laughs> no, hold on, hold George, on. George, I'm going to lose service. I'm going to lose service. Yeah, I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know. Just hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I want Javier to talk. Javier, the floor is yours. Javier. Thanks, brother. Listen, real quick. Yesterday, yesterday, I was told that I just don't understand that people who touch the barrel are too close to the oil commodity and are too bearish. That's what I was told by a guy who's invested in the market and speaks every day about the new Bitcoin that oil has become. I'm listening to people who have been pounding their chests to the public irrationally about upside. Do, am I bullish oil? Absolutely. Do I believe we're short? Absolutely. Do I believe that over time we're going to have to uh, have a significant investment in CapEx and OpEx to be able to increase supply? Absolutely. But the reality is this, around the globe, we are seeing destruction. 
if you get away from gasoline and diesel, the markets are contained. We're building stocks in Leidens. We're building stocks in chemical feedstocks. We're building stocks in ethanol. We are building stocks in things that people use. We have right now a refining capacity, a refining capacity constraint. 97% U.S. Gulf Coast last week cranked out 6 million barrels of diesel and gasoline. Here's my prediction. I'm going to say that we do not get better than minus 2% 2019's driving demand for the holiday weekend. If that's the case, we are getting ready to see a bit of a squish in oil. And that's okay. $70 oil in September, if we're backwards, and DEEF is 60, is still bullish oil. We do not have to go to $150 to be bullish oil. Problem that I have with these guys, these talking heads, these new geniuses, these new geniuses in energy markets who decided to show up after we've been doing it for 25 years, it's that it now has to be 150 or 175. Could it go there? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that you could have an extraordinary event. I will say you're not going to see equity upside. You're not going to see the oil companies push into some new paradigm of nirvana if oil goes to $225. Um, I'm listening to small cap companies tell me the hedging is useless that this, they're going to ride the physical commodity. They have no use for hedges. And then the third thing is this. If they're going to throw the bathwater at fund managers, you're, the, the energy equity, which is what we've seen, we've seen futures and we've seen physical detach from private and public companies. And it's not, you know, free cash flow, free, free cash flow. That's great. Okay, but if I'm a fund manager and I'm covering margin calls and losses across the board in every platform and I'm up for the last six months or whatever the time frame is in energy, it's gone. If you go pull it, I'm going to say it again. There's a Bloomberg code. It's called dot M-M-L-O-S-H. It is the managed money long short index for commodities. It is one of the best indicators of sentiment across the board, and it does not preclude, include or exclude oil and gas from raw materials. Until that ticks up, you're going to see a drawdown across the board in all commodities. This is a deflationary environment for commodities. We are under the GOC, the Ichimoku class, in almost every commodity out there. It doesn't mean that we can't go higher. It means that it has to retrace. We have to build bases. We need to see demand uptick. And I, I want to see, see the rest of the oil barrel start getting bought. We're not seeing it today. That's it. I'm going to lose service. George, I love what's you. That server, what's that, um, what's that um, Bloomberg uh, ticker? Dot M-M-L-O-S-H index. It's the managed money long short um, uh, in commodities. Take a peek. Okay. Thanks. So, again, for those of you that aren't familiar with Javier, uh, he, he is, you know, he's got his hands on the barrels and he, he's in that real market. It's not just a financial uh you know, macro commodity tourists. So when Hob, when not Hobby according speaks, yesterday, no, I don't understand. I know, but, 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 but when Javier speaks, I listen. It, 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 hey, Javier, Javier, your connection is really bad. So I don't know if you get to a better place, speak up. But it's really kind of hard to hear. You. So anyway, the point is, Javier, come back when you got a better connection. The point is, when Javier speaks, I, I urge everyone to listen. He had a great call six, eight weeks ago, as did Aces, and my hat's off to him. All right, so let's move on here. I want to do Shrub, and then we're going to do Cantro. Shrub, talk dirty flows to me, Shrub. How are you, my friend? Shrub, you there? Please unmute yourself. Shrub? 
Aces, can you hear him? Uh, nope. His speaker. Now, are you there now, Shrub? Now, Shrub, we can't hear you, bro. All right. Let, all right, let, all right. Hey, Cantro, are you there, my friend? Cantro? Hey. Hey, doing? Michael. How, how are you, Michael? Good to see you. What's going on? I'm good. I can come in and out. I'm playing golf, so I got to shoot. Uh, well, you, <laughs> between holes, you can tell us what's going on. What's going on, my friend? Um, well, it's all, it's all playing out, uh, I think, in a fairly textbook fashion in terms of the economy falling apart. Um, now everyone's starting to realize how bad the earnings are going to be. Um, you know, I was listening. I just jumped on. We were talking about negative earning companies. And for so many reasons, I think people are going to get run over. They're going to try to dive back into those. You go to what happened in 2019. And this is just so different in 2019. When the Fed pauses when they're done here, it's probably going to be when claims are rising higher, not because inflation is coming down. And you'll have a real short relief rally. And then like you saw in the fourth quarter of 2000, reality is going to hit rising unemployment claims, falling earnings numbers. Um, you know, just from where I sit, from you know the 100,000-foot macro view, this is as bad as a cycle as I've seen in 40 years. Um, and we're nowhere near the bottom. We'll have relief rallies. You know, we saw the bad, we a horrendous ISM report last week, and the market went up because, you know, bad news is good. That's only going to get you so far. That only really works when we're kicking the can on the Fed, like before they raise rates. Once they're, once they're this deep into it and we're this deep into the slowdown, you know, earnings are going to make up for that. So there's no bad news earnings that's good for stocks. And that's going to be, I think, real clear over the next six, eight weeks when earnings comes. I don't really have anything specific to say, but, you know, from my seat, everything's playing out in textbook fashion. Um, still don't think we're anywhere near the bottom of either the economy or the market. Uh, but, you know, we're now in this period where people are going to look at bad macro data and try to use that to jump in as hoping the Fed's going to pull us out. But again, I think the best parallel is probably 2000, just in that you had a you know a few months of a rally and I think this will be shorter than that. And then everyone gets sucked back in. And then in October claims shot up and that's it. It was lights out. Right. So, so can, that's can, to me so what can, I'm focusing on. Claims. Cancer, you, 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 you've, been, you've been spot on, you know, again, I, not to embarrass you, but I've said it once to say it again, in my view, you're the best strategist in the street. So when you speak, I listen question, my friend, um, on the controversial uh, energy call, uh, I think I know your views, but uh, could you just update your energy view, the view of what's going on right now? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're still overweight. We've hung on to it. Uh, we were market weight last year and energy overweight this year and getting close to flipping that. But again, I think it's more about claims. And you know, we look back at 2000, 1990, um, it was not when claims started to rise, but, you know, it, it, it's it's lights out when that happens. So, you know, I don't think we're that at risk of a sharp rise in claims in the next three months, but I think in four to five months, absolutely. So I'm willing to hang on for a little longer. Um, you know, we're thinking about parts of the market that aren't going to get blown up. Uh, I, you know, I think it's, I'd rather own energy than financials here or industrials or, you know, even materials. Yeah. So, 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 so can't throw that can into individual picks. We just talk sectors and styles. Um, I know you're negative on the consumer. If I said to you, well, what, what's going to lead on the downside from either a sectoral or factor standpoint, what would you say right now to help, to help well, everybody beta. in the room? Anything beta? high beta. Negative earnings, high beta, low interest coverage, small cap value, um, scenery, banks, autos, you know, everything that's been getting its ass kicked 
for the last year on a rel, you know, every, all the stuff that peaked right. in March of last year is now getting hammered. And, and that's all that stuff I mentioned, you know, if we're going to get a bounce in a relief rally, it's going to be growth stocks that bounce. So, you know, to me, the, the pain ahead is, is from claims and credit spreads and earnings and financials are at the top of my list of what should be at the bottom of the list. And, all, and, and with, with consumer stocks, I presume you're negative on as well still. Yeah, for relative you know, autos, no thank you. Housing, way too early to jump into anything close to that. You know, as long as the NHB is going down, housing stocks are underperforming. That, that hasn't relationships been locked locked tight. Um, with I say with respect to once you see once you see the Fed pause and oil and um, bond yields start melting, then it's time to relatively get into some retail stocks and housing stocks. But I, I think that's you know, six months away. Yeah, and there's one last but, question. Could you just sort of, because you, you're the you're the man with the numbers, and like us, we just bloviate and talk about our opinions, your facts and numbers. Can you just, um, just give us your thoughts on earnings for the market 22, 23, where it's consensus, and what and what do you what do you think about earnings, Cantro? So yeah, consensus now is two twenty nine for this year and two fifty for next year, um, which is absurd. Um, you know, the honest question. I say this straight to clients. You know, I have no idea how bad they're going to be, and I've, I, I'm not going to pretend I'm going to be able to model them because. Not only are we in a downturn, and good luck modeling earnings in a downturn like this, you know, everyone's models are based off of, you know, if you think about it, 95% of the time, we're in a slow and steady, you know, good economy. So your models only work in those types of backdrops. When you get a fat tail event, like a recession, models are terrible. And so not only that, um, your point, George, you mentioned earlier about recency bias or reference bias, 206 last year was in a year where I'd say the global economy, U.S. economy, had the highest propensity to spend. You gave people money, $7 trillion. You created a housing bubble. You want to get people to spend, that'll do it. So, the, we, you know, real simply, I think, you know, the worst two markets in the last 20, 30 years have been the multiple-driven tech bubble blow-up and the earnings-driven earnings bubble that ended in, in, in 07-08. That was an earnings bubble. You know, after a 20-year debt bubble, ultimately created an earnings bubble. So, you know, 2007 wasn't, and eight wasn't about multiples too high. It was about earnings too high. I think we've got both of those right now. In the last two years, we've had an earnings bubble and a multiple bubble. So people that are looking at like, oh, we're only going to fall 30% from their high. And again, I think the reference point from that is, is idiotic. You know, when, when, when you shoot up as fast as we did, you can't use it as a reliable reference point. So, you know, just like we saw in 2000, the reference point was irrelevant. Uh, and so I think we, we're beginning to see the multiple compression. And now we got to unwind the earnings bubble. So, you know, I'll say, I say this to every institutional customer. I've, I have no idea. I don't really care because at the end of the day, what I know is that markets will bottom when leading indicator, leading economic indicators will bottom. And that's when earnings revisions will bottom. And no one's going to have a clue what the earnings number are, including me, including anyone here on this call. And you almost, you don't need to know what the earnings number is. is it becomes more macro and more sentiment and leading indicator driven, the, 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 the more this economy slows you know when you have extreme recoveries or extreme collapses which we're in you know modeling good luck so i just think it's a lot lower from where we are today and i'm not going to put an earnings number on it because i have no clue and you know a model uh you know uh, anyone's statement is only as good as conviction behind that and you know all the time i get asked by clients you know what's this number what's that number and i say listen i can run a regression for you but i, I have no confidence in it so that's, that's my answer Pietro, I just love, you know, you spot, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I just want to thank you 
for all the guidance you've, you've helped me and McLaren in my thinking. And I urge everyone to follow Cantro. Uh, he, for my money, he's the best strategist on the street. Public, public, before we go to Julian, who's going to weigh in, just a public uh, service announcement. If, there, if you know of any bulls that are in the room, um, you should let, if you have any friends, do, you know, this is not a safe space for them. Um, you know, they should, <laughs> they're, they're, they're asked to leave right now because we're going to go from the frying pan into the fire. You were talking, Cantro, about earnings. Um, and we had Julian Brigden in here eight days ago. Um, and um, Julian's not going to pile on. But what I love about Julian, he does things totally differently from you, Cantro. And he sits, you know, black she's in the U.S. these days. But from a totally different perspective, he kind of comes to the same place. And that's what I really love about having all these sharp cookies in here, different, different MOs, but we kind of wind up in the same place. And so, Julian, I don't, I suspect your, your, your view hasn't changed much in eight days, but maybe you know, mark to market, if there's anything you've seen that's happened that, you know, changes your view or bolsters your view, or maybe any of the comments from, uh, you know, Cantro or uh, Stefan or Javier or Aces or, or, or a good mutual friend, Tommy Thornton, Julian, you, you got anything that's top of mind you, you want to contribute to this mess, Julian? Please unmute yourself, Julian. I don't know. Aces, can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. His speaker's yeah, still red. Yeah, all right, fine. Say, let's let's go to it while we're waiting for him. Nora, if you're there, um, welcome to the stage, Nora. I, I, it's the first time that um, we've spoken. Um, maybe. Julian, can you hear us now, Julian? Yeah, yeah Julian's there now. Can you hear me, guys? Perfectly. Julian. Now I can. Yeah, Nora, if you could just hold, Nora, just hold on for a second. Julian, can you speak now, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, George, I mean, you know, we had this discussion. You said we come about it from a from a different perspective. Um, you know, I've been modeling the similarities to the dot-com bubble for a while. Um, and I think we're probably about halfway through. Um, there are a couple of things. I mean, I think um, we've noticed that in the economic data, uh, in fact, we put a piece out um, last week along with a bunch of sort of buy recommendations on euro dollars and stuff like 10 days ago. But the data really has started to swan dive uh, in the US. Um, now, you know, quite what's driving that, I, I would call it hyper-financialization. So this sort of feedback loop, the self-fulfilling feedback loop between equity uh, price action and CEO's behavior. So you're starting to see people lay off, get laid off. I would totally concur with the uptick in unemployment, we've got unemployment starting to materially, we think it's based now, the unemployment rate should start to materially pick up in August, September. Um, and what's interesting about the unemployment rate, if you track it against its 12-month moving average, unless you get the Fed punting the cycle, so coming in and really aggressively easing, um, pretty much once you get amongst that 12-month moving average, there's only one way for that thing to go. So I think the odds of us moving into recession are extraordinarily high. I've noted as well in some of the PMIs that we've got in the last two weeks, a material change to some of the pricing dynamics. Now, uh, to your prior caller, um, I think the market's going to try and look at this and, and call this sort of a Hail Mary pass and say, oh, look, you know, pricing uh, is coming down. Uh, but that just highlights 
if if companies can't push the price increases through or having to make concessions because demand is finally starting to show signs of you know not imploding but it the, just the demand isn't quite there then i think um yeah it may help a little bit on the inflation side so i can see inflation starting to in some respects flatlining a little bit george i don't have any major collapse yet uh, and that i think is very problematic because the fed has built in a very aggressive downturn in inflation so i think you still keep getting a, a an aggressive fed but against that if you've got lack of pricing power starting to show up, um, you have acute margin compression. Um, and we talked about it um, when I said, I mean, I have, if I take it at face value, my models are showing a 50% collapse in S&P margins from like, you know, 16% at the moment down to like eight or nine. I mean, I don't know whether we'll get there, um, but the direction is absolutely clear. And that's why I do think to the point, you know, that the next big shoe to drop is these earnings revisions. And then finally, I, I want to just highlight something else to people. You need, everyone needs to go and listen to the conference call between Bailey, Powell, um, and Lagarde at Sintra, the, uh, the ECB kind of uh, Jackson Hole equivalent uh, from the last week. They finally acknowledge something that we've been talking about for three or four years, and that is that we may be moving into a structurally higher inflationary world, uh, which has huge long-term ramifications for the corporate sector uh, and, sec and asset allocation. And secondly, um, they talked about as well that this sort of nice, um, great moderation, which is the economic term that sort of applied to the period since the mid-80s where we've seen a reduction in the volatility of the economic cycle, they seem to be implying that all of those were over. And so I think we need to be prepared for a real move into boom-bust economics, the like of which we haven't seen since the late 60s into the 70s and it wasn't just the 70s it started in the mid 60s and that i think to me was probably the biggest event of the last week yeah Ju julian thanks for calling that out could you just slowly repeat uh th th that event again because i'm certainly gonna, look, gonna go listen to it it sounds like the type of thing we were talking about in these spaces six months ago um, but could you just, for the benefit of everyone in the room just uh, repeat again what what it is they're supposed to listen to thank you yeah, so there was a, a there's, Sintra is is kind of Jackson Hole equivalent of the ECB. It's a meeting that they have every year or started to have every year in Portugal, uh, in the uh, lovely resort of Sintra. And uh, there was a, a, a roundtable discussion, basically, with the head of the BIS, uh, Jay Powell, Christine Lagarde, Christine Lagarde, and Andrew Bailey, the head of the uh, Bank of England. And uh, it should be available, I would guess, on the ECB website. But if you just put Sintra, uh, S-I-N-T-R-A, and those three central bank uh, names in, you should find it um, up on Google or something like that. But it's definitely, definitely worth listening to. Um, for those of you who've got access to uh, Bloomberg, uh, John Authors wrote a piece about it as well, I think, on Friday. I think the call was on Thursday, I think. This is a real big deal. I mean, this is a structural, structural inflection point with enormous consequences.
Thanks, Julian. Hey, Cantro, do you want to weigh in on that, Cantro? Yeah, no, just totally, totally agree. And you know, if you look look back at a chart in the uh, late sixty, basically from sixty six to seventy nine, eighty, stock market only went up when the economy was accelerating. You know, don't look at inflation. Don't look what the Fed was doing. Just look at broken record, the ISM pretty much only went up when the economy is improving. In other words, P's and earnings moved together. That's what Julian you know, was referring to, boom-bust. That's, that's what a boom-bust world is, when P's and earnings move together. Um, but you know, within the ISM report just from last week, the new orders was 49. The index overall has been overstated now for the last three years because 40% of the index is supplier deliveries. Um, and inventories and supplier deliveries at 57 because of the bottleneck issues, which is getting better, but that's still artificially holding up the index and inventories, which is 20% of the index is now at 56. I suggest anyone who has that data chart to go look at it, or even look at the ISM report on business where they probably have a chart of it. We have inventory levels on the ISM at 56, which you haven't seen in 40 years. Uh, and that's what also contributes to boom bus. We haven't had an inventory cycle like this. Yeah, totally agree. This uh, is and, that's, that, and then that's why you know, everyone's got these new orders inventory charts that are collapsing. And now you know you got new orders collapsing and inventories going up. It's the worst case scenario. So again, you know, I, you know, I'm not a short term guy, um, but over the next year and a half, I still think there's a lot more blood in the markets to be squeezed out. Hey, hey, Julian, are your comments suggestive of a potential debt contagion or crisis of any kind? Um, look, I mean, it, it's entirely possible that you could get a crisis. I mean, um, I was cheered by the comments of your uh, German commentator. Sorry, I've forgot, forgotten the name about the energy situation. But I look around and you can see... You can see the the basis for potential crises in a bunch of a bunch of countries if these central banks are unable to address. I mean, the UK is an obvious one because it runs a huge current account deficit. Uh, the US is one, but probably later because it's the reserve currency. Um, but if these central banks are unable to get ahead of this inflation cycle, just because of stagflationary acute weakness, um, that's a that's there's your potential for a crisis um and i do concur that i think you know we talked uh, you know in january of 2021 the first piece that we wrote was inflation we called it the most important variable for 2022 um and i think uh sorry for 2021 and i think that at the end of last year the last report we wrote was called accelerative oscillations and we talked about how we are setting ourselves up to see boom bust economics and i think for you know we've we all laugh about it on this forum and various other about you know how you have money managers who tell you you can't time markets well i am telling you now you need to start learning because if we're going into boom bust economic cycles where these things literally turn and flip because of that inventory cycle because you've essentially what i refer to as negative gamma central banking where basically these guys would get behind the cycle and then have to tighten really aggressively at the highs and then ease really aggressively at the lows. It's like trying, you know, for any of you guys who've obviously known what trading a negative gamma book like, that's exactly it. You pay the highs, you sell the lows. 
they will add to the underlying volatility and the swings that we are going to get into markets are going to rip your head off. So if you can't protect some of your money in that environment, this is just, you've got to learn because this is not a passive investment environment I think we're going into. I think we're going into something which is potentially great from a vol trading perspective, but could be utterly damaging from a wealth management perspective. Wow, Julian. Yeah. As not seen on CNBC. Hey, Cantro, yeah, real quick, Cantrell, I'm, I'm going to go back to playing golf and just listen. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, because we were talking about inflation, you know, the best leading indicator of CPI is the prices paid index in the ISM. And that's still at 78, which is still a ridiculously high number. So there's no way inflation is coming down fast unless you see that price is paid below 50. And we've been hanging at 80% for the last two years. So yeah, I, that's, that just came out. I totally, I totally concur. I mean, that's your, that's your PPI pressure. That's what they're paying. As I said, the big thing that has struck me in the last two or three weeks from some of these surveys are signs that firms are increasingly unable to pass that on. So that's why I think to, you know, Tom's point earlier, everyone's point earlier, there's a shift going on here in the equity market where we need to go from the, you know, reducing the P because your discount factor is rising in terms of bond yields to focusing on the E because if firms have been incredibly successful at passing through price increases, if they're suddenly running into weakening demand, an excess inventory and it flips into earnings and they can't pass these price increases on them, that's the next huge drop. 100% guys. I mean, I think, we, I think we need to have a merger. I think Cantro and Julian, you guys got to sing it for the same prayer book. It's absolutely awesome. All right, let's, let's move on. Everyone stay there because this has been a great, great room so far. I want to go to Nora. Nora, you've been patiently waiting. Welcome, Nora. What's on your mind, Nora? Please unmute yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. Um, I am enjoying this conversation thoroughly. I'm still laughing at the suggestion that we are leaving the era of, you know, uh, market volatility or boom and bust cycles and market volatility, especially after 14 years of uh, stagnant, well, not just stagnant, uh, at, at, or, well, real interest rates being at or near zero. Um, and then extreme, extreme monetary tightening um, are you worldwide. I, I think this is insane that anyone would even suggest that we, <laughs> anyone that would see that we have been doing this for 14 years and then suggest that, oh, we're just not going to have any market uh, volatility in these boom and bust cycles is just, well, I guess they're not economists, obviously. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier. I agree with a lot of what you guys were saying. I've been really enjoying a lot of you guys' insights. I would have loved for, I think, Cantor, you said something about um you were asking someone to pull up an inventory index if someone could find it or um that that would i would love to see as well um i wanted to go back to uh when we were talking about uh where we're seeing uh uh, stock prices going and you guys were talking robin hood and tech prices especially and i just was going to offer in my opinion that any stocks that i see that 
um, are not dependent on commodities prices, I see are still inflated in my particular opinion. I think that um, they are inflated, in fact, because we still have seen this period of, um, you know, 14 years of zero interest rates and people uh, an inflated stock market, just an inflated stock market in general, and then inflated tech sector um, and any stocks or, um, you know, sectors that have not relied specifically on um, commodities it, prices. It, 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 no, um, no, 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 can I interrupt you for a second, please? Is, is there a question you'd like sure. to ask one of the panelists, please? Is there, do you have a question? Um, I guess my question is if someone can find that uh, that index that uh, Kentra was speaking of, that is something that I would particularly like to see. And then I guess I would like to also go back to Julian and say, if you think that we are um, entering this period of boom and bust cycles again, what do you think is the greatest indicator? Or actually, I'm not sure if it was Thomas or was it was Julian that was specific specifically talking about unemployment and um, how that factor in particular um, seems to be uh, rising. Uh, what do you, do you, well, I think particularly that that's going to be the, the factor that influences these boom and bust cycles the most and shows that. Um, but what do you, what factor do you think in particular is going to show that we are entering into another, um, you know, cycle or series of cycles of boom and busts? Um, obviously, inventory is one, um, and there are various sort of metrics you can look at uh, that on that side. Um, you know, I was listening to the ISM call. The chairman of ISM was pretty sanguine, actually, because he was saying that uh, he thinks that, uh, you know, the order books are very, very strong. But we saw as in, in the GFC that things can get cancelled really damn quickly. And that's kind of my concern there. Um, but, um, you know, you can look at the PMIs as some of the best indicators you can get. Um, in terms of the inventories and what's happening on that side. And I am concerned, you know, there were a lot of commentary in that conference call that he did where he talked about um, the companies are sitting on very high levels of semi-finished goods that are just sort of 80% completed product. They're waiting for those, you know, two chips to arrive or whatever. Um, if that situation uh, starts to ameliorate itself, you're going to, I think there's a real risk that you can go from, um, customer inventories, which are still essentially in famine type levels, to feast to hang over very, very rapidly. So the customer inventory one, I think, is an important one to watch on the ISM. Uh, on the employment side, I think um, jobs opening in jolts. I think that's going to take that number is going to take it in its in the teeth. It is hugely correlated to the S and P. I mean, just pull up a chart of jolts, job openings, and run it against the S and P, and you can see the S and P leads. I mean, this is classic, this financialization we talked about, right, where CEOs aren't paid to produce a thing. I mean, up until recently, not even make a profit. Um, and they're just simply shepherds of an equity price. So as soon as the equity price starts to go down, they cut back on employment and capex. And we've seen it already in announcements. So I think that jobs uh, opening will drop very, very sharply. That's a good leading indicator. The rate of change of claims is a very good leading indicator. And then there's some other sort of, metrics that you can look at in terms of things like you know uh some of the economic slack questions that they put out there you know why are you your hours down you know because of soft working conditions and stuff like that those things are pretty good leading, leading indicators too so i think all of those i mean employment is generally a bit of a lagging indicator but i think uh we're going to start to see those things pick up 
uh, unless some dramatic changes over the summer. Julian, you've given us a lot. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much for that. By the way, just when you thought this room couldn't get any better, just when you thought this room couldn't get any better, we have Dr. Jim Walker, who is now in the house. Uh, he's off the racetrack up in uh, near Edinburgh. Dr. Jim, always a pleasure. I know because of time zones, it doesn't always work. We're thrilled that you're here. Um, Dr. Jim, who don't know him, he's uh, one of the best minds on uh, economics and strategy. Um, he's from the Austrian school, so he's been looking at this whole thing through a very different lens. And uh, Dr. Jim, I want to just sort of uh, contextualize, maybe have some comments top of mind, but I, my mind is drawn back to an observation you made three months ago in this room. And like yours truly, you're not a young man either. And you were talking about your early days in the 70s, starting out as an auditor. And you were talking about um, LIFO versus FIFO accounting and how in an inflationary world, companies don't even really understand what their profits and losses are. And since those comments three months ago, the situation's gotten markedly worse. And so I'm just kind of curious, maybe you give us an updated view on sort of up update on your global views and how you think things see things playing out from here vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, economies, inflation, profit margins, stocks, et cetera, et cetera. So, Dr. Jim, um, yeah. I'm thrilled that you're here. The floor is yours. Thanks, George. Yeah, the, the, the racing uh, has mostly finished, so uh, I thought I'd listen in. Um, I won some money today, actually, but uh, never mind that. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's uh, really interesting, and I've been following uh, Michael Cantrow's stuff for uh, for ages now, and uh, I, I, I don't know Julian, but I think that both of them are absolutely spot on about the the, the profit cycle. I mean, they call it the earning cycle. Uh, in the Austrian world, we call it the profit cycle. And what people need to realise is that um, regardless of unemployment, and I would say actually regardless of ISM surveys and the like, the real thing that matters in terms of the boom-bust cycle is profits. Profits drive absolutely everything. And when companies don't know what profits they're making because they can't calculate them because of what's happening with inflation, then eventually they just stop investing. Now, at this stage in the, the, the global economy, what we've got are a lot of people who were out there a year ago, six months ago, saying, oh, my goodness, we've never had it so good. Let's just pile on the investment. And the ones that I'm thinking about here uh, are TSMC, all the big semiconductor guys. Uh, we've got to increase capacity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our investments are going to make an absolute fortune. They're done. These companies are toast because the amount of capital expenditure they've built up and put in the uh, pipeline for the next four or five years is going to absolutely destroy them. They're going to have to cut back on them. They're going to have to cut back in capacity. Uh, and everybody's going to be thoroughly disappointed uh, with, with that whole space. The other area where the, the, the profit signals come in and the profit cycle comes in in a huge way, and again, this is what we talked about a few months ago, George, when these companies go bust on the back of uh, reduced earnings, then uh, it's the financial system and especially the banking system uh, that's going to really reap the rewards. And, you know, well, the rewards are going to be much more in the way of bad debts, much more in the way of loan losses, 
and nobody's talking about the financial sector at the moment. I think somebody maybe mentioned it earlier, saying that uh, they would rather be long energy and short financials. Uh, and I couldn't agree more with them. Uh, that financials, I think, are uh, the most dangerous space in the world next to semiconductors at the moment. And having said all that, uh, I'd just like to remind everybody that uh, today is the 25th anniversary of the start of the Asian crisis. And even though uh, lots of us that were out there and maybe foresaw some of that coming, uh, unlike others in the market, uh, we, we absolutely totally underestimated the amount of time that it would take to sort the problem and the amount of pain that was involved in getting from pre-problem to post-problem. And I've, I've said this to, to our clients over the course of the uh, the last few months, we're in the first innings. And although you think I'm technically British, and that probably means cricket, what I'm talking about is uh, baseball here. We, we might be coming to the end of the first innings, but this whole thing, in terms of the profit cycle and in terms of the boom-bust cycle, has got not months to go, but years to go in the same way that the Asian crisis did. Can I slip my wrist yet? Um, there's still money to be made, George, but uh, mostly in tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> and, and probably whiskey. <laughs> hey, Julian, are you there? I don't know if J Julian, you know Jim or Jimmy, you know Julian. You guys should know each other. I mean, yeah, I, um, I, used to, I used to work at Credit Agricole for my sins, <laughs> a, a French bank, and uh, Jim used to come in upstairs to CLSA when I worked in the New York office, and I would sneak in and get an invitation, um, and I loved listening to Jim. I always never quite understood how uh, such a broad Scottish accent went over so well in Asia, uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, he's he's one of my favourite uh, strategists. <laughs> You, you said you didn't understand how it went over so well in Asia. I thought you were going to say I never understood what he was saying because I couldn't I couldn't understand his accent. That's another story. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, just so you guys don't know, Walker is a is a rabid Boston Red Sox fan. So <laughs> he, he's a good man. He's a good man. Yeah, so. June was a good month, George. <laughs> hey, Julian, did, uh -oh. did we? Did, Julian, did we charge you coming in for coming in at the back of the? Uh, the audience. Uh, well, I, I, I used to know the head of sales. I, I know the head of sales of CLSA <laughs> very well. So he used to sneak me in. But the, the 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 reason that I went down so well in Asia, Julian, was that of course nobody could understand what I was saying. So <laughs> therefore, I, I, I could I, I could always I could always no. claim that I was never wrong. <laughs> so Walker, so Walker, Walker, you're basically the Scottish analog to Alan Greenspan. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I, I would hate to be uh, compared to that guy. <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. Oh, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, you, you guys should, you guys should, uh, you guys should get to know each other because you're, you're all great minds. I, I look up, I look to both of you guys. It's absolutely fantastic. So, so, so let me just let's reset here. So the consumer incomes are under pressure. So real incomes are falling. Um, we've got an inventory problem. Um, we've now got an emerging pricing problem. And as Cantor was saying, I think he came back in. I'm not sure where he is right now. We're going to have a, and as you're saying, Jim, uh, we're going to have a capex problem as well. Other than that, everything is fine. Did I get that straight, Jim, or what did I miss? No, no, that, that, that's spot on, George. Uh, profits drive investment, and when profits go down, investment collapses. It doesn't go down; it collapses. <laughs> All right, um, hey, Jim. 
hold on, Jim. Did you yeah, see yeah, the, yeah, micron, yeah, just, the micron? The yeah, micron diamonds. Yeah, Tommy and Aces. I have to step away for just a minute. So, Aces, if you okay. just run the room for two minutes, I appreciate it. I'll be right there. Keep on going. Okay, just right. one quick um, thing, Jim. Did you see the micron? Guidance. Yeah. They, they're uh, cutting their capex, and for a semiconductor company to cut their capex, which is very rare, especially for a micron, that is a not. It's not a one or two quarter thing. This is a longer term aspect of the semiconductor manufacturing business, and that to me is a really important thing. The other thing is talking about financials. The financial a lot of a lot of the uh, big banks aren't buying back stock right now, and I I would absolutely not discount uh, a Citibank or Citicorp, whatever they're they are now, uh, lowering or cutting their their dividend. The the banks are in in hunker down mode right now, and that's a really big tell. So yeah, semiconductors and the banks very good place uh, to watch uh, re regarding the economy. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what you, you've just uh, outlined on Micron, I think that's the canary in the coal mine. Uh, and there's going to be lots more to come, but probably not for quite some time because many, many of them won't realise the, the problems that their eventual increase in capacity is going to bring them. But yeah, I, I totally hear you on the, the banks and I, I, I run scared of them. Of course, being an Austrian, I tend to run scared of them all the time, but uh, at this particular point, I think uh, uh, unless you, you can be very, very sure that your uh, bank has not made mistakes over the period of zero interest rates, and I can't think of any uh, in lending to zombie companies, then I think you're in deep trouble. Jim, have you have you looked at the, um, the issue regarding sort of what I would call private financing of a lot of this risk, so the private equity side? Um, there was a really interesting report um, by one of the big consulting companies. I forgot which one it was off the top of my head. Um, that was saying there's up to three trillion dollars of uh, pre-committed money uh, in the pre in the private equity space, and that this money is going to get drawn down. Um, sure, some of it people might dispute whether they really want to pay it in, but you know they've pre-committed. Um, and this is going to draw a lot of money from the, the public market because this money, you know, if you're a big endowment, and we know these are a lot of the people who put this money into this thing because they have the big advantage of not being marked to market. Yeah. Um, that this is going to be, this is where a lot, this, if, you, if you're looking for a black swan, this is potentially where it is. It's in the private equity space commitment, you know, forward commitment to a lot of these, these type of names. I, th I think that's 100% right, Julian. Um, the, the, the private equity space is this crisis's uh, CDO space, subprime space. Um, and I think people have totally, totally underestimated how much in the way of commitments are out there. I think that there's a very good couple of chapters in uh, um, Chris Leonard's book, uh, the, the, the Lords of Easy Money, um, on that. Uh, and of course, it's taking it from Jay Powell, who is one of the kind of big movers in that uh, private equity space. And, and it's the, the, his stuff is absolutely frightening on how much is out there in private equity and just how little in the way of covenants are involved now, how much the companies have got away with. 
and how much the people who have financed it stand to lose. It's just, I, I think, completely horrific. This is like the, the, the Thai non-bank financial system, 1997. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah when I, they were the second largest market for Mercedes-Benz, I remember reading that and going, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they literally didn't see it coming uh, and it wasn't even that hard. Uh, the Mexicans showed them the way in 1995, but they did yeah. nothing about it. And I'm afraid these guys, uh, and it's going back to something that Nora said, you know, we've had 12 years or whatever it is of um, zero interest rates and easy money and quantitative easing and nobody's taken any uh, avoiding action or evading action uh, to try and keep themselves solvent. They're, they're all in the game together. It's uh, Chuck Prince, uh, keep dancing while the music's playing. Well, the music's just about to stop. Yeah, no, Jim, 100% spot on. And, and a point relied to that that I've, I've mentioned in recent spaces, I'll repeat it again. Um, and that, you, know, you, you point to the, to, to, to the length of this upcycle. Um, and the longer, the longer the upcycle, the greater the excess, the more debt. Um, you know, adds adds piles all the bricks up to leading to an even bigger Minsky moment. And looking beyond that, I, I personally believe I've said this before. I'll say it again: the likes of Tiger Global and D1 and all these guys and, and, and the private equity, and all this stuff, it is done. It is done. It is not just oh, we're going to be down a quarter or two, and don't worry, we're going to come back. No, no. I think we are at a generational high. You know, it could be 10 years, 20 years, all this excess liquidity driven, you know, narrative chasing, investing, um, you know, fake it till you make it sort of I'll, I'll just pick on Chase Coleman sort of as a placeholder for what I'm referring to. That is done. OK, and your 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 CalPERS or whatever, just use them as a you know represent, representation. I can't remember if they put it was a 400 million or 800 million into into uh, into Tiger. It's finished. It's, it's done generational wise. So think about it. If you're the chief investment officer for a big endowment or pension plan or whatever, and you know you just found out you had you had an 80 percent off sale, and it's like, well, how did that happen? We were up for so much for so long. You gave back all your profits and then some, and it's gone just like that. Okay. The one thing you're not going to do. Once you get the memo, the one thing you're not going to do is put more money into that asset class. So I think, you know, the, 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 the sort of venture capital, um, the fake it till you make it model is done. And, you know, it's, and it feeds into some stuff Cantor is saying. And otherwise, we're going to be looking at companies. You want to go for companies that have strong balance sheets, good cash flows, um, don't need external capital. Um, you know, short duration over long duration. And what people, again, Chase Coleman and Tiger Global are going to be relegated to the dustbin of history. If someone wants, I don't know if Charles Kinderberger is still alive, they're going to be have another chapter written for this excess. We're going to say, how did we ever do this? And you can take crypto and all the rest of it and private equity, all of it, and just throw it down a rat hole. So I don't know if any of you guys, Julian, I probably overstated the case as, as is my habit, but I don't know, Jim, Julian, Aces, Tommy, anyone have any thoughts on that? Hey, hey, George, I'd like to add add to that. I have a buddy, uh, Wells Fargo, who's um, in charge of approvals for leveraged lending. 
And, and he says, you know, he's never seen anything like this cycle. He says the the recklessness being carried on by the private equity guys, the, the, the banks are so regulated, they can't do a lot of the loans. So the private equity guys are doing it now. And he says, it's just wild what's going on. And, and so I'd love to hear more comments on this. I, I think, you know, fleshing out what the this is at the private equity shops, uh, it could be, could be very, very profitable. I'm, we're short uh, a couple of those names, but uh, we're trying to, trying to learn more. So any insights any of you guys have, I, I think the vulnerability is, is, is enormous. Julian, Jim, Tommy, Aces, anybody got any? Uh, I mean, we're, we're working on it, on it now, but it's really hard to see, right? I mean, this, is, this stuff is all pretty opaque, right? I mean, I've heard, the problem is, is I've heard of some funds sticking private equity into their, into their offerings, some hedge funds as well. I mean, it, it, this sort of leverage upon leverage upon leverage, I mean, this is CDO square from what we, you know, what we saw in the in the GFT, so uh, we're trying to dig into it. It's not that clear, um, but I think it it could be it could be a significant problem when these when these companies start to draw down on on pre commitments from some of these endowments and other investors. Uh, you know, if they've got the cash, fine, but people rarely have that cash. So I just think it's going to add to some of the uh, the selling and certainly the lack of money that's available for the public markets. And, and Julian and Jim, maybe you could take the comment more generally, just what it speaks to animal spirits. And, you know, it's one thing when we talk about the risk-free rate, what the policy rate is, but the implications for credit spreads and just animal spirits. And, you know, you get to a point where people start to become more concerned about the return of the capital as opposed to the return on the capital and the sort of involuntary contraction that it causes against the backdrop of what's the biggest credit bubble in history. Yeah. I struggle to see how the consequences of this aren't anything other than disastrous. Yeah, I mean, George, just look at, if you go and look at something like triple C versus B credits, um, they're highly correlated, as you would suspect, to the underlying economic cycle um, in terms of growth, because that's obviously derives, that's where you derive your cash flow to pay the, the debt off in a strong growth environment. You're fine in a weak growth environment. You're not. They've actually been remarkably um, well contained. I mean, most of the weakness we've seen in, in an index such as HYG is really from the duration component, which is blown out um, as bond yields have risen. We've really not seen that much, quote unquote, credit spread weakness. Um, where these PMIs are coming, I mean, if you take that triple C B spread, it's about 400 odd basis points moved up a little. Um, it should rise at least 50 percent from here. And that's assuming that, you know, ISM stops here. Right? I mean, credit itself, I still think, has got another leg, big leg to go. And it's really from the from the credit spread component, not the duration component. Um, and that should weigh massively on stocks. Hey, hey, George, can I just go back to the macro? I mean, when I hear, you know, the, our foreign accents, uh, you know, I'm an emerging markets uh, corporate operator, uh, Julian and Jim. Um, and when we're talking, you know, a couple of quarters or more of, you know, drastic earnings compression, and we're leading to potentially, a, you know, a potential debt contagion, uh, you know, 
discussion, if nothing else. Um, you know, what, 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 what do you guys see out there in terms of the currency market? Is it kill, 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 DXY to 120? Or could there be some problems there in the currency market? Because that's just as impactful on, on what I do as anything else. Thank you in advance. Uh, yeah, hi, Ace. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult one just now. We, we, we've seen big implosions already. Uh, Sri Lanka's gone. Uh, obviously, Turkey's on the brink. I, I think there's actually very few in the way of the, 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 the kind of serious Asian countries apart from um, Japan, which are uh, on the brink of a, an absolute currency collapse and economic collapse. So the, the good thing from a lot of the, the emerging markets, and I don't cover Latin America, uh, ACES, so that I'm sure that's part of your uh, area, but uh, a, a lot of the big countries in Asia actually look reasonably okay, including China, although our forecast for Chinese growth this year is is basically 2% or a bit below that. Um, but but that aside, the, the, the potential for implosion in their currencies, I think, is relatively limited. The, the, the big danger for all of us is Japan, uh, because they absolutely seem to be cleaving to this uh, yield curve control uh, well, uh, I could call it stupidity, but that would just be a, a, a very uh, light word for the, the craziness that these guys have got. I mean, I, I fully expect the Japanese economy to contract about 5% this year uh, because everything uh, is... Jim, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. That's crucial. Can you say that again? 5%? Yeah, 5%. Because I think investment's about to collapse, George. I think uh, consumption is going to collapse on the back of uh, real, real earnings going down significantly. I mean, what people don't seem to realize about uh, a currency like the Japanese yen falling like this, which then raises their inflation rate, which everybody loves, of course. Central banks love it and governments love it, except when it actually starts meaning something about their voters. When you have purely imported inflation, what you've actually got in the domestic economy is deflation because you're exporting your currency. And the Japanese are doing that hand over fist at the moment. So you think the Japanese economy was flat in its back for the last five years? You ain't seen nothing yet. Jim, Jim but Jim, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I know the uh, export intensity of the Japanese economy has contracted. You'll, you'll tell me what the number is. So I know they're not as export dependent as they used to be. But you're yeah. telling me, even with even with the incredible improvement in competitiveness and the collapse of the currency, they're still gonna. You're still looking for a five percent contraction in Japanese GDP. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, George. And it's one of the reasons that we're looking for only around about two percent growth in China. I mean, the the thing that happened in 2020 that saved people like China, uh, Korea, the, the the North Asian economies was that. America printed shit loads of money. Uh, the, the government deficit went up uh, to a what was it? It was up. It went up ten percentage points of GDP in one year, and there was a huge amount of money around in Europe and in the United States to buy goods made everywhere else. Of course, they couldn't buy services because everybody was locked down. There was no planes moving. There was nothing. There was no international travel. So they had to buy goods, and that's where partly the inflation's coming from. But uh, what it meant was that Asian exporters and Asian uh, economies really benefited from that. This year, 
everything's contracting. So even though the Japanese export reliance has gone down, the fact is that there's absolutely no boost to them at all from their export sector. It'll go negative. But there's going to be a massive boost from their import sector because they've got to import much, much, much more expensive goods because their currency has gone down 15 20% in the course of the last six months. Got it. Uh, just just uh, as an aside, you expect, uh, I think I heard you correctly, I know I'm of the view the end's going a lot weaker. I know Julian's of that view. Do you share that view, Jim? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm torn between thinking that it's going to go a lot weaker and the Japanese are just going to absolutely fall by the wayside. Yield curve control is going to be given up and the whole facade of zero interest rates, quantitative easing, and this whole period of Bernanke economics is going to be over and done with completely because Japan will have failed. And that will mean that markets will have to realise the whole system has failed. The whole monetary, um, what would you say, a rigging system has failed. The central bank system has failed. Oh, so allow me my Jeremy Irons imitation for my favourite movie, Margin Call. So, Mr. Walker, uh, what you're saying is if the music music's slow, I'm not going to get it right. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, okay? So, Jim, if that happens, I can't do it with a straight face. i got to get my lines down. If that were to happen and they give up the whole facade and finally, you know, the Wittermaker trade, which has been shorting JGBs for three decades, which has never paid, maybe yeah. they'll pay. So, $50 in double jeopardy. Explain to all of us in the room, what does that mean for sort of uh, global bond markets, given that Japan is the world's you know, second largest bond market in a large creditor country, what would that mean for, for interest rates globally? Um, well, you know, my view, George, is that uh, for, for most of the last decade, I've been advising clients not to short Japanese uh, government bonds because I just thought it was a, a bad trade while everybody was at zero interest rates. Today, I think it's the best uh, opportunity globally short JGBs. What does that mean in terms of interest rates going up? Much higher, right across the world. And by the way, just one thing on that. I know a lot of people think that interest rates are going to get cut in 2023. If they get cut in 2023, let me tell you, in 2024, they will go up much, much more. Because that would be just making exactly the same mistakes that they made in the 1970s. They cut interest rates into slowdowns. They thought they had the problem solved. But inflation isn't solved by recession entirely. It's got to be solved by monetary contraction. And that's still a long way off. By the way, I don't think many people realise the S&P is still up year on year at the moment. When the S&P is down 20% year on year, then you'll know that you've got a, an end in sight to interest rate rises. Jim, you know, it's amazing. It's like, I, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I put the title... From well, first, first the title was always darkest before, before pitch black. Period. <laughs> and, and then, and then Thornton agreed to come and do the space. It'd be fair to him. I was, I was really impressed with myself putting that title up there. I got a lot of kudos for it. I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna take it down. But he's not as he's not as congenitally bearish as I am. So I put a question mark after it. So I give him top billing. I put Tommy Tom Thornton. Period. Always darkest before pitch black. Question mark. Okay. I have to tell you though, <laughs> listening to Cantro. Julian and yourself, I'm like, I think that's exactly the right title for this room. Yeah, but just take the question mark off, George. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my 
second one. Hey, hey George. Uh, I yeah, yeah. When I saw that, I I said to I said to my wife, I'm like, oh shit, George is gonna really, you know, want me to go my full bear, and you've known no, me I, I, to be I, I, very very bearish. I, I know, but you, but I, I, but in deference to you, I love you, man. I put the question mark in there. I know, I, I didn't want you to do, listen. I, I didn't want you to do your bid, my bidding. You, you didn't have to do your, your my bidding for you. I, I can do it myself, but it's just unbelievable how this thing, this room. I don't want to say has generated, has has degenerated. I would say has progressed, has really been enlightening, if I can use such a term to describe the cataclysm that we're looking at. But I, but seriously, these are like some of the. These are some of the smartest guys, investment minds on the planet that I pay attention to. And so, what am I? I mean, Aces, Aces, you've been around a long time, right? Or Shrub, you know what? Hold on, let's get Shrub in here. Shrub's now back up. Can, can I quickly jump out, George? Thank you for your yeah. time, and and I wish everyone here a nice long weekend in the U.S. Yeah. Happy Fourth of July, and I'm. It's 7 p.m. here in in Germany. Go I'm going it. to dinner, and if anyone has any few on Twitter, happy to have a discussion on DM messages Excellent. and. Have a nice weekend, yeah. Bye bye. On Hey, Shrub. George. Yeah. How's it going? Can you hear me well now? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Shrub, are you there? Yeah. Can you can you hear me well? Yeah. Now we hear you. Okay, so Shrub. Perfect. Before we, okay. Before we get to the flow data, which is always. I don't think I can be more bearish than you guys. Well, 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 <laughs> Shrub. What I want to know is I want to. Shrub, 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 Shrub. Seriously, seriously, seriously. Okay. You got three of the most brilliant. I mean, look at look at the look at the, look at the quality of this panel, right? I mean, and you've been around. I mean, you might say, "Well, it's consent." No, it's consensus amongst some of the most brilliant investment minds on the planet. And so, this is totally out of consensus when measured against the the investor class. So, I'm going to ask you. You and I like to tease each other. We ask we ask each other questions that we know they already answered to. What is what What are you supposed to make when you got? Guys like Walker and Cantro and Julian, and I'm not going to say Thorne, he's not a perma bear. He's a smart guy, but I don't want to talk him with the perma bears, right? When they're coming with stuff like this, like, I know how it speaks to me. How does it speak to you, Shrub? Uh, so, the, you know the Led Zeppelin song? The song remains the same. 100%. It's the song remains the same. It's like... It's like everyone just thinks about this V-shape and the V-shape and the V-shape because they've only lived through V-shapes. And, you know, no one just pauses to think, this can just drag on two years, like in 2000, or 10 years, like the 70s. There's so much excess. And let, let's have some fun with a few things that we have that you guys touched upon very lightly, uh, that it's worth uh, ju just adding a few data points. You remember when uh, Kathy Wood saw the arbitrage opportunity between the private markets and the public markets and she wanted to do a crossover oh, fund. Yeah. Do, oh, yeah. you remember that yep, yep. <laughs> so so back then i was I, I was like this woman is crazy because klarna which is a you know uh, payments company whatever you want to call it or pay now never pay again kind of bullshit they were raising money at 47 45 billion dollars and back then square was in the market you know, Square, which renamed into Block, collapsed from like sixty billion to thirty billion. I'm like, well, this is insane. The private market is still is still mispriced, and even then, if you had uh, D1 mark down their books by twenty five, thirty percent, and Tiger marking it down by that much, because they said, oh, you know, our long only portfolio is down seventy, but our privates are only down thirty. Come on, man, 
you're the same team. <laughs> so, so anyway, so there was a there was a really interesting data point uh, yesterday. So Klarna, um, they raised, they're doing a, the new round from 45 billion to 6 billion. From 45 billion to 6 billion. This, this, is, this is a company that's in every single crossover family office. It's been peddled to every single company around here. Uh, you know, it's the sweetheart of uh, European fintech. So they wrote it down from 45 to 6 billion. That's one data point. The second data point, there's this joke of a crypto company called BlockFi that, you know, anyone with an IQ of above 100 wouldn't invest his own money. Um, and anyone with a finance degree or one-year analyst in a bank wouldn't invest their own money. Um, they're getting sold for $25 million. The last round was close to $5 billion. Guess who led the round the last round? Not the last one, the second to last. Tiger Global, Tiger Global, three billion. So you basically you marked assets. Basically, it was like the absolute Ponzi scheme in the private markets that's unraveling that was holding up actually until the last few weeks. It, it bizarrely, was actually holding up because if there's no sellers and there's no valuations, so these guys, the Tiger guys, you know, we seeing the headlines. Oh, they're down 50%. But I was always saying, like, Tiger, this cycle is going to end with Tiger down more than 70. Because even today, they're probably down 70, but they haven't marked their assets correctly for the last six months. So you're starting to see these big hits. And these big hits are going to basically make a fool out of all these funds. Because they're going to be like, if I, was a, if I was an investor, these guys, I'd be suing them. Like, I would have such a field day with litigation. It's like, hold on, you're telling me that in March 31st or in June 30th, you marked Klarna in my books by at 20 billion and now you're doing a fundraise at 6 billion? Or you're telling me that you had a crypto thing at 3 billion and it's now worth 25? I'd be like, guys and girls and ladies, we are so early in this redemption cycle for one simple reason. They need to clean up so much shit out of all these guys. And I would, if I was an allocator, I would be embarrassed to be invested with the Tigers after these mismarks because this is like fundamental. You're not talking about an investing mistake. You're talking about almost a dishonest uh, act because, you know, if, uh, if what's his name uh, one, wants to get his bonus for Christmas, of course, he's not going to market Klarna at uh, 20 billion. He's going to keep it at 45 billion. So I think this thing is a major major, very important event, subprime equivalent, because when you have mismarks of this sort, this is the subprime thing. It's, it's a confidence thing. It's a confidence thing. And this is, this is like, a, in a way, it was like a confidence thing as well, because you had a lot of banks having things marked at model and marked at model, marked at par, marked at uh, maturity, whatever. It's the same shit. It's just the players changed. So this thing is going to create a confidence game and that's why you're going to keep seeing the redemptions. Even if the market stabilizes, these guys are done. Could not agree with you more. You're spot on. Say, Shrub, can you update, update us on the fund, fund flows numbers from this past week, please? Yeah, so on the fund flows, it's been something quite interesting. Um, so we've had outflows a week ago for the first time. Uh, well, I mean, a decent amount of, um, of outflows. Um, and you will see that this week, 
the outflows were actually, uh, they slowed down. But I have to just make something, one thing very clear. You guys will see a headline. Equities had 5.8 billion of outflows. Bonds again lost 17 billion. But if you break down these outflows, which is 5.8 billion, um, it's all driven by Europe. So Europe is, keeps having outflows. It's like bleeds outflows, but actually the U.S. had inflows. And U.S. large caps still had inflows, 6 billion, which is significant. So from the, from the flow game, unfortunately, fortunately, it's still the same thing. There's still no capitulation. There's capitulation in certain parts. So I think credit, there has been some capitulation. You had, you know, for every 100 that came in, 35 came out. Even if we argue that, uh, you know, credit still has more to go, there's still, you know, there's been significant outflows in credit. But in equities, um, the flows have been neutral over four months. So over four months, we've had flat net inflows. And in the U.S., if I break it down, it's actually probably still inflows. Now, there's one little interesting point to make here. Three interesting things. Financials had 14 weeks of outflows. I think that's not a surprise. But... Resources, they had their largest outflow ever. I thought that was very, very interesting. So you had materials out three and a half billion and energy 1.3 billion. Um, I think it's a very, very interesting data point that um, that you've actually seen capitulation with on the tourists in the energy space. So that's why I, I think it's been a very fast decline. I mean, we've talked about it two weeks ago. Um, the decline was very fast. 25% drop in the XLE is no, uh, it, it's a biggest move I think ever uh, in terms of speed. Um, and that shows in the outflows. So I'm actually quite, you know, I'd be more comfortable. Uh, I think it was country is that be more comfortable, you know, being on the energy side than, than, uh, than something else where you have like a cleaner setup at this point. Yeah. So it's trouble. Let me hey. ask you, hold on, hold on. Let me ask you, it's trouble. So you were cost of energy. I was cost of energy. Uh, Aces was cost of, uh, cost of energy. So I just sold my longs, and uh, Aces did the same. And I didn't go short. I think you went short. But my question to you is, so, like, I have no energy, and I'm kind of looking, wondering, because we also believe in the long-term theme. I'm not comfortable getting back in just yet. I mean, I mean, I get it's going to outperform the other stuff. I get that. But, like, right here, right now, if you were to come down from planet Mars, and, you know, psychologically, you're not impacted by your prior uh, victory or, or failure. You know, and, 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 and past, past, past results are no guarantee of future returns. If you're going to put a trade on, you're like, you know what? Don't talk to me about hedging. Don't talk to me about being long energy versus the S&P. Just, you know, up or down, red or black. If a friend said, you should, be, should I be buying energy stocks here? What would you tell them? You know, it's a very tough call because if we're, you know, it's the same thing as two weeks ago. We're bearish the economy um, and energy is going to get hit. But, you know, gun to my head, uh, I mean, I bought some of my energy exposure back. Um, I bought my safe royalty plays that uh, give me a nice dividend. Um, I told you I bought back, fertil- I bought the fertilizers and I'm down 10% already. Um, and the fertilizer should be much less uh, GDP sensitive than energy. And that, that's down 10% on me. So, you know, I kind of feel like I'm, I want to have some exposure to energy. But I would have half the exposure of what I would like to have. 
Um, because and the reason I can say this is because I'm 60% cash right now. So I'm okay to have core convictions. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm actually really glad you said that because there's a tendency sometimes on Twitter, you know this, someone will take something that somebody else says out of context and they'll say, oh, Shrub was bullish on fertilizer. Shrub was bullish on energy. He must be getting fucking destroyed. Excuse my French. Um, yeah, no, it's, you know, but, but, the it's reality, true, I mean, but, but the reality is if you're 60% cash, you, you, you have the right, you're comfortable. It's not a big exposure for you as opposed to like, you know, you get some of these folks on Twitter here and they're, exactly. they're, they're putting like leveraged positions with call options on and this and that. And, you know, it's a totally different picture. So, um, it's, it's important that people understand the context of what you're saying. Um, so, but, but like you, exactly. I mean, and and the, to be honest, yep. Go yep. ahead. Go ahead. No, no, exactly. I think it's it's important to clarify. You know, the uh, we've been saying the cash position for the last few months. I think that remains. You need to have a very big cash cash position. And to be honest, I'm gonna stop loss. I mean, I'm I'm not in love with anything. You know, I, uh, like my old boss used to say. You know, just love your wife and your kids, but uh, you know, don't love your position. So, you know what? If I see weakness, I'm out. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, you know, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. So, Ace, sorry to cut you off, but I just want to get that question. Ace is back to you. Ace is. Yeah, no, no, I just wanted to say, Shrub, uh, you left out my favorite one, Mark Schmidt. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what we got. So um, I'm just curious uh, in terms of uh, the Fed. Um, I think they were – you know, they basically really didn't roll anything off uh, from what I can see. And also there were some rumblings about – uh, the mortgage market having some problems. Have you seen anything there? Any 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 uh, opinions there? Yeah. So there was one argument that it takes a few months to settle, and I really want to look more into that on the MBS side. I don't know if anyone has any view. Just please uh, raise your hand. Um, but look, my view is the liquidity in the credit market was so bad before the QT. I mean, we've we've highlighted this uh, early on. I think. You know, there was literally no liquidity in the equity market. And there was a Bloomberg article today that uh, Allianz said they, they take weeks to unwind a liquid position and they can't even buy something. Uh, they can't buy new positions because the liquidity is not there. So they were going, you know, Allianz was actually just raising the alarm that there is no liquidity. You know, liquid stuff takes them weeks to buy and uh, they can't get in new positions. So... The liquidity uh, problem has been an ongoing problem, which got worse and worse and worse. The reason why no one has been banging the table about it is because things were going up. So, you know, all these Volcker rules and all these things that just drain liquidity and have uh, left banks with no inventory in the credit market. No one cared because, you know, bonds were rallying through the roof and Austria was issuing 100-year bonds at 1%. But, you know, now the... Now the <laughs> Now it's time to pay the bill. And unfortunately, I, I actually don't believe that the Fed is going to manage to do QT. Huh? I, I don't believe they're going to do it. So give them a few months, but I cannot see this uh, sustaining. So th there was a time, Shrub, when you thought a clever move might have been for them to back off on their rate posture and put the pedal to the metal on QT. You don't Correct. like that idea anymore? You, you're, you no, I like it because... Look, I like it because it's the cheap way of doing uh, tightening. I mean, you want to tighten financial conditions. And it, think about it this way. You have a very liquid market and you want to bring it down. So if you're a seller, 
it's fi- it's a great way to increase financial uh, to to tighten financial conditions. Um, so I still think that was a smart thing to do, and they they would have ended up having fewer rate rises and just smash the you know <laughs> smash the credit market, and then you create uh, you know you you artificially create a recession. But having said that, because now we're entering the recession talk. You know, we're kind of far in the game. We're like six months down the line or, you know, three months down the line since then. You know, I wonder, and they've and since then they've done 75 and they're doing another 75 most likely. So by this point, you're talking about significant tightening. And if they're selling into a, a liquid market during the summer, I don't really know the, how long they're going to manage. I, I really think that, I wouldn't be surprised if they stop uh, before Christmas the QT. I, I don't know what uh, you guys think, but I, I, I would struggle to see how they do it because you also need a buyer on the other side, right? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, George, you go to Thomas next. Tommy? Hey, hey guys. Um, do you um, happen to notice, uh, there's a couple things that hit the tape. Um, Exxon uh, guided up. They put an 8K out and guided up uh, over the weekend. And uh, Tesla just came out with their delivery numbers, which missed. And they missed, I mean, not much if you look at CNBC, because CNBC, any number is good number. And uh, just keep in mind, not many people will probably Tuesday because they'll buy it. But they guided their no, or the Tesla IR uh, had all the analysts guide down their numbers huge and they put a consensus out that was about 30 to 40 percent lower than the analyst and um, I think it's important though the the company that's making more money than God just uh, is going to be making more money than God did before so it's um, it's kind of interesting to see that uh, Exxon uh, release if you can look at it I think it's uh, it's pretty substantial. You know, Tommy, they, Tesla's been doing that every quarter for years, uh, which is a direct violation of Dodd-Frank. They, they privilege a very small number of investors with, uh, you know, that sort of thing that they do, the way they, they guide everybody to a number. And then, and then, you know, all the previous estimates come out of Bloomberg. And then, you know, they beat and beat and beat and beat and beat. They've been doing it for years, and it's criminal. Thank you for it. And I saw what you said on your uh, your timeline about your previous employer, and, you know, it's unbelievable. Um, George, sounds like he may have stepped to the restroom or something. Let's go to a couple of hands. Uh, Jake, you've been sitting there for a while. How you doing, buddy boy? Doing good. Hey, appreciate it, Aces. Great spaces, guys. I think it was Julian speaking to the – multiplicative effect of like the the QE and QT inflation cycle against volatility. Just curious if the the kind of increasing pendulum swings of regulation and deregulation in the American political climate is like it seems like a little further left and further right could act as almost a cubing um, factor against that volatility. I kind of, you know, it's the period that I've been looking at, as I said, is the sort of late 60s. And I think um, we're falling into all of those sort of steps. I mean, in the late 60s, we got um, guns and butter. We did get the Johnsons uh, 
you know, great society spending because we kind of swung too far and we were, and social justice was, was too unbalanced. And in many respects, um, what Biden tried to push through was quite similar in that sort of respect. So the politicians, the thing that I worry about for the politicians is they will always pander to the last threat. Um, fiscal rectitude has been taken out and shot through the forehead. And so if I put my, if I try and align the dots and I said, okay, look, we're in a recession, it's early 23, we've got an election coming up, um, what are the politicians going to do? Are they going to stick to the fiscal rectitude or are they going to try and spend more money to get elected? And I was at a dinner uh, a few months ago where I met a um, Republican representative and I posed that question to him. And he wryly smiled and he said, well, we'll spend more money. It just depends on what, right? So I think that actually politicians, this is what happened in the 60s. You had a central bank that just got out of whack because, you know, inflation started to pick up in 65. They hiked aggressively. The equity market rolled over. They then eased aggressively, um, but they eased into ongoing fiscal spending. And then it re-accelerated inflation. It never went back to the prior lows. And we, we went through that cycle three on three other occasions. And that's kind of where I think we are. So I'm actually thinking that the political cycle adds to the vol and adds to this risk of boom bust um, because fiscal rectitude is now, it's gone. It's gone. And we live with such a, you know, if we think that corporate executives manage to the next quarter and their stock options, essentially politicians do the same thing. Thanks, Julian. Nice. Uh, Jake, I'm going to have to put you down because I've got about eight or ten people who want to come up. Hey, Preet, I've, saw, I've seen you, you You came up about 15, 20 minutes ago. Did you have a question for one of the experts? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I think one just point of clarification on the endowment foundation side, someone made a comment about uh, private equity. I think the one thing to note is, uh, you know, a lot of the endowments foundations are diversified across different assets like energy, like biotech, tech, other sectors like industrials. So, um, you know, there might be some endowments improperly positioned, but I think from what I know, at least, a lot of them have a lot of diversification, even on the privates. Um, that said, I, I had a question on, um, you know, I think the topic being discussed was the CapEx was bad, you know, companies with inventory, that, that, that's gonna be harder so, you know, in terms of sector and energy is a special case in terms of CapEx because there's other sort of structural, you know, supply issues um, that will make it attractive. But in terms of, you know, things like software and biotech where the CapEx is low and you don't have these inventory issues, I'm curious what the speakers think of that for, you know, call the next five years. And you, you sort of have an opinion. If, you, if these things get to reasonable valuations, whatever you may consider those to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me interrupt. What is the question, please? So that's the question: is 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 are those two sectors attractive, biotech and software, for the next five years? So, uh, so no, 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 no. Aces, aces, aces. Let me take this. I, I want to move on here. Um, I think both those sectors are both incredibly unattractive. It's not a question of capex; it's a question of long duration assets. 
and 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 they've been the 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 the, the, the eye of a lot of speculation. So I think they're a complete disaster. I, I would I would run that walk as fast as possible away from those sectors. Um, uh, Aces, I'd like to maybe go for another ten minutes and then call it a day because we've been going now for almost two and a half hours. So Aces, uh, you've been running the room. Who who do you want to call in here? Uh, just a few more questions, and I want to call. Our, it our favorite pain in the ass, I think, is next. Hi, O'Hare. How are you? <laughs> What's up, guys? Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to ask you. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm suffering <clears throat> from COVID here. Unbelievable. All week. Uh, the uh, the discussion uh, about private equity uh, and venture capital investments on the part of uh, foundations and endowments. That's one thing. But it, it's the it's the big pension funds out there that are just chock full of this stuff over the last you know five to seven years. They've been Go, go going out of their their energy investments and putting all that money into private equity, and if you, uh, it's interesting, um, Calpers is coming out with their annual report here. I think in the next few weeks, uh, if you go to their report from 2021, and you go down to the breakdown of investments, I mean they are just full of private equity and private real estate investments. So you know if you think that the hedge funds like Tiger Global, among many others, are having problems marking these things, and somebody <clears throat> somebody a, a long time ago coined the term mark to make believe uh you know these guys you know it's like a linear uh, uh return form right they it's 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 like uh, george has said many times and like some of you guys it's just uh it, it's a wonderful way to just keep fees coming in because it's just straight linear left to right so my my issue is like uh, the unknown in the pension fund space because i can tell you as bad as it is for the hedge funds these pension funds that put in you know tens hundreds of billions of dollars into this uh, globally. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, a disaster. Couldn't agree more over here. I mentioned Calpers about an hour ago and talking about Tiger. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. Calpers, so, I mean, it's, yeah, if you look at their report, it's, it's amazing. Uh, no, it's going to be a disaster. Um, <laughs> pour yourself a stiff scotch before you read that report. <laughs> Appreciate the comment. Let, let's, let's move on. Hey, Rob, good to see you. Rob is a good friend of the room. Rob, what's on your mind, man? Rob Isbitz, what's up, man? Uh, hey, thank you so much, George. And first, a very quick apology. Uh, uh, I, uh, I had a st- head of steam contributing to this thing for the past month. I love it. It's the best crowd ever. Uh, and in the last month, all I've done is start a charity, start a bond replacement project, uh, say, say goodbye to my mom after seven years of Alzheimer's and put a cat to sleep. So uh, I have a lot to add to oh, the group. And, and I'm, oh, and I'm working my way back. So I'm, I'm really sorry for you, Rob. I always love hearing from you. I'm, I'm sorry, for, sorry for your loss. So yeah, it's um, okay. It's okay. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, and we're about to leave for uh, three weeks in, uh, in, in uh, Somerville, Boston area. And if there's anybody from this group who wants to get together and talk markets, just, just ping me. But for now, a couple of quick thoughts for you guys to uh, react to. Uh, and this is, you know, coming from my former world, the advisory space, and just some of the crazy shit I see going on there. Uh, most of not good. Uh, first thing, this is a nickels and dimes market. What do I mean by that? Up five, down ten. Up five, down ten. Wash, rinse, repeats like death of a thousand cut by a thousand cuts. The public is not ready for it when it accelerates. It's going to accelerate. Just a matter of when. And financial advisors and pension funds, that's why I'm glad I followed the, uh, the fellows just talking about pensions, totally fucking unprepared. So the second thing and the last thing, really, the cycle of market emotions, we've all seen the chart. Uh, I have an emoji version of it myself out there on the web. Um, we are still much closer to complacent than despondency, uh, I say, as an amateur sociologist. 
Um, and so the bottom line for me, and I'd love to uh, get uh, reactions and questions to this in the few minutes we have left, uh, you know, S&P is going to drop below 3,700 at some point. Next stop, right down to 3,200. And after that, maybe it's 2,200 or maybe it's 2,000 because this is what markets do. This is what cycles do. And this is the cycle and the bubble to end all bubbles. Um, and it, when, it doesn't matter. You just have to have a plan. And, uh, and that's why this uh, group is so great. So let me stop there. Uh, glad to be back after a hiatus uh, uh, when listening to the replays, reactions, questions, and, and thank you all for listening. Hey, thanks, Rob. I'll just go first and then anyone else. Um, couldn't agree more. For the average person in the room who wants to know what to do, I keep saying the same thing. You mentioned defense. Have a lot of cash. Be like shrub. Have a lot of cash. If you've got Larsen in your heart, you know, and are comfortable being short. Mm -hmm. Go short. This is we had the everything bubble. We're not having the everything bear market. You know, it's always remember, don't fight the Fed. Well, yeah, don't fight the Fed on the way up. Don't fight the Fed on Amen. the way down. It's pretty simple. So, you know, it's summertime. You're just going to lose money the next few months in the market. Just go to cash. Go enjoy yourself. Hug your kids. Go to the beach. You know, come back in the fall. And we'll see what happens. But for now, uh, I don't think you're missing any of the upside. Again, for me, equities continue to offer return-free risk. I don't know. Julian, Cantro, O'Hare, Walker, yeah, anyone. George, one thing I would just say to that in closing, uh, I completely agree, except uh, I'll take it one step further. The first thing you do with a bear market is you defend against it. And the second thing you try to do, if you're willing, as you said, is you exploit it. And that means net short, uh, but but uh, renting instead of owning. And I'll talk about that more, I'm sure, through the summer. So thanks. Anyone else on stage want to well, – it's a great question. Anyone else on stage want to answer that one? Well, I would just say, you know, um, I think a couple – places you can kind of hide out and i think it's 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 uh you know just from our perspective anyway everybody's got an opinion but i think energy and um you know some of the some of the consumer staples names uh if you're gonna if you're gonna, if you want to be in stocks if you want to hide out uh that's one area a couple areas i would look and even the materials names you know some of the fertilizer stocks for instance uh are great bargains right now so you know there are areas that you can look at uh you know from a from a you know maybe a two or three year perspective uh, with the idea that, you know, they could go a bit lower. But if you want a place to hide out, those are some of the some of the places I would look for. Thanks, Sawyer. Um, wait, Tommy Thorne, are you still there? I don't know if Tommy's still there. All right, let's go on a yeah, couple yes, more Yes, yes, yes. I'm here. Yeah, 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 Tommy, if someone's bullishly inclined, um, scalping or otherwise, like what are the parts of the market look best to you, be it if not on an absolute, on a relative basis? Like where would you be hunting? Uh, you know, I, I've been, sorry, I'm just walking in and out doing the kind of barbecue. Um, I think, um, I think you can start to come back into some energy names. I think uh, what Shrub was saying is, is spot on. Um, uh, I think that you're going to see some bounces there because there's still, there's still going to be some really good earnings going forward. And so I think the market will respond better to those. Uh, even with um, some of the commodity shakeout, I think you can be there. I'm starting to look at some of the materials as much as it looks awful. I'm a little bit more nervous on tech. I'm very nervous about in uh, financials. 
Industrials are sort of a no man's land right now. Uh, biotech, as much as everyone hates biotech, uh, Helene said last week, there are no charts with bases. Well, biotech has a base. And I think that you could see a mean reverting bounce there and nobody will really notice. So I'm kind of looking around those areas, but just with everything, I will take, I will scale into positions with a small size and scale out of positions. And I hope to be taking profits, um, smaller profits in this type of environment. And I'll take profits early and maybe too early, but, and if I see things change, I'm out. But that's just worked well tactically through the whole year. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm not, I'm, you're, Still, again, so, so, so you're, you're, you're better. You're, you're in a rent, you're in a rental mode. You're not going to buy anything. Yeah. I don't see anything that looks, you know, jumps out at me and says, well, this is a safe risk reward here. Right. I don't think that's even um, in anybody's vocabulary right now. So I think right now it's just, you're going to look for places with relative strength. That's starting to act better. Maybe build some bases. I'm long, some China stuff, Alibaba, K web, stuff like that. Um, and those have done really well, but right now it's it's such a, a nasty market that you could be expecting something a little bit more. And if it doesn't work, just you got to be out. You got to be willing to make mistakes. You're right. By the way, Bobby, Tommy, I'm going to put this one at you. And um, Ace is. I don't want you answering. Well, I don't know if anyone has any answer. I mentioned rental versus versus buy. We haven't really talked about it, um, but and I want up in Pandora's box, but. If anybody on stage has any views, whether it's Rob or Bob Klein or Julian, anybody, uh, Bloom is off the rose. I mean, it changed the margin. Someone asked me, like, what's what's changing now compared to or what's changed now versus, say, 30 days ago. Signs of uh, real slowdown overall in real estate markets. Admittedly, you know, we all know real estate's a very local uh, business. And so you don't, you know, not every market's the same, but generally speaking, you look at inventory levels. You look at uh, percentage of houses where asking prices are being cut. Um, I just think, consider the, the anecdotal stories I'm getting. You look, you know, it, that 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 game is is ending. And, and so I think, I, I, yeah, I think we're looking at a pretty uh, real estate market. Only going to be a source of negative surprise going forward. Uh, the other thing I would say, and there's a great video. Uh, I put it in my Twitter feed. It was a YouTube thing. It was like a week ago. This guy in Aces, I don't know if you saw it, but this this guy out in uh, Las Vegas did a really good video on what's happening to the uh, repo market for automobiles and how, you know, the last couple of years, there was a dearth of repo uh, cars that came on the market because I guess moratorium on repossessions. Now that's gone away. And so the number of repos that's occurring is like, you know, like double or triple, some crazy number like that. And the guy was taking around Vegas, showing you these tours, these parking lots of all these used cars that are being repossessed. And so, you know, everyone's the, the great cocktail party conversation the last couple of years has been, oh, look at used car prices. Well, there's reason to think that if that's right, if that, and again, I urge everyone to go look at it. Look at my Twitter feed. It's, I put it in there a few days ago. Um, I, it looks like the used car market might even be for Tumble as well. So, whether it's real estate or it's used car prices, um, I think. You know that's that's gonna look. Those will come front page stories before too long. So I don't know if anybody on stage has any input or insights, any of those observations. Yeah, George Mayer for a quick metaphor, please. All right, yeah, and this is a forty-two year technician. Um, 
you know, there was a time where uh, when I'm staring at thousands of charts a week and trying to make decisions tactically and long term, my go to was the weekly chart and maybe the daily to make final decisions. These days, everything, everything is in play from probably 30 minutes all the way out to the weekly. And I spend more time on the one hour, the two hour, the four hour. And why is that? We just saw it with this most recent rally, which now I thought I had a chance to maybe go another three, four percent. And then, bam, it just stopped. Why did it stop? Who the hell knows? All we know is that it stopped. And it's probably because of all the things that were being discussed here about flows and it plays itself out. Like I say, market always tells us a story. We just have to listen. And that's you know, what I hope to contribute here through the chart work. But, um, you know, it, it's just we're we're getting into an era where even the stuff that the chartists and the algos used to use to be successful, it's it, at least for now, it's done. And when it comes to past performance, which a lot of these guys are, are you know, trying to trying to live off of. The only past performance that I think really matters is what you what you're doing this year and going forward, because the yeah. rest of it is just all changed. Yeah, yeah, Rob. So brilliant insight. Uh, I don't think you were in the room earlier, but um, we had Tom no. kicking off the room, and he spoke to how he's been looking at a lot of the sixty minute charts. Mm-hmm. Really, really helpful, and and I thought that was particularly noteworthy from Tommy. So great minds think alike. You and Tommy are on the same page there. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't. Well, agree. Hey, thank hey, you. George, I- George, I just put the video with the car guy in Vegas in the nest. Oh, uh, th- thanks for that, Aces. Thanks. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, let's get through a couple more here, and then we're going to close the room. Uh, let's go to uh, Andreas. Try to keep, keep it. Please, if you have keep it tight, if there's a question, don't want any speeches, because I want to close this room down. Before. So I'll go to Andreas and then oil money. Andreas, welcome. What's up? Okay, thanks, George. I'll keep it real tight. So, like, everything we're talking about, market's going down, um, QT is happening qe is gone so do you my one question to you so it's real theoretically in your opinion um so as um we're in a qt cycle that just started like two weeks ago um have you noticed a back door um in the reverse repo market through the percentages for those days which is really high if you really look at it okay stop andreas 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 i have an aversion to all this fixed income market plumbing discussion because I'll tell you flat out, I don't understand it. And I think- Yeah, most, I've been trying- Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, and, man. And yes, Aces, knows what, Aces knows what I'm talking about. There are people that run rooms, all they do is talk about that stuff and it sounds great, but I listen to them and the lips are moving, but I don't know what the hell they're saying. So I don't like to go down that rabbit hole because I don't understand it. And I've yet to listen to anybody explain to me in plain English that I can understand what it all means. So I don't know if there's some plain English question you got and somebody on the stage wants to answer it, that's yeah, fine. Why, why is the Fed balance sheet going up when we're doing QTs? Okay, fine. All right. Oh, now we're talking, okay? Watch what they're doing, not what they're nice saying. Nice save. Nice save, Andrea. Kick save. <laughs> hey, Walker, you want to answer that one, dude? Walker. Chris, Jerry Chivas. <laughs> oh, Rob. Or Eddie Jockman, kick saving the beauty. I don't know. Julian or Walker or any other number crunchers want to answer that question? I mean, it's all bullshit. They These guys lie as much as they can. Watch what they do, not what they say. But I don't know. Julian or Walker, anybody have an answer to the specifics of that question? 
If that, we're going to move on. I, I, I just don't think the Fed knows what it's doing, uh, George. It's day by day. In fact, it's probably brought back to what Rob's saying. It's minute by minute, and they haven't got a clue what to do if it was anything strategic whatsoever. Jim, let me use this question. This is for you and for, and for Julian. Like, you look at I – I can't remember who made the point. I can't remember was – maybe Julian, it was you, I think, a week ago. It was you, Julian. I don't want to accuse you or give you credit for this one. Even if you didn't say it, you should take credit for it. I think it was you making the point that, you know, Jerome Powell will go down in history perhaps as the worst Fed chairman ever, ever, making two incredible, in, incredibly bad policy decisions in the course of 12 months. Um, now, whether, Julian, you said that or you didn't, and or Jim, if you want to answer it, I mean, Julian, Jim, or anybody, Julian and Jim, you two guys, how would you respond to the assertion that Jerome Powell should be nominated for the worst Fed chairman in history. Jim, what would you say to that? I, I think I'm pretty bad. <laughs> I hate to say it. Um, I think they are uh, public servants at the end of the day. Their approach to data watching is, I think, archaic, given the data that we've got. They're trying to improve. You can see that in some of the regional stuff. Uh, I have a very good friend who um, I think sums it up well. He was Senate chief economist. He worked for a uh, probably one of the top three macro hedge funds. Is, let's call it euphemistically chief information officer. Um, he worked at the Fed, and he said he says, "quote I followed the, the Fed man and boy for forty five years. They're always most bullish at the top, and they've never called a turn." And um, I think that's the case. And I think um, you know, given their job, I'm not blaming them, but. Um, I, that's why I think they're going to add to this volatility going forward. Um, and this hawkish pivot was necessary. Um, but when you've pumped up asset prices to this degree and you have the feedback loops that we do between financial assets and the real economy, you better strap yourself in. I don't fault them for doing what they're doing now, but what I, I mean, <laughs> I never have anything good to say about these guys. I go back. My favorite example was when um, in the great, 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 great financial crisis. I'm curious what you think of this one. You may have made this one up too. I don't know. I just repeat things that other smart people say. And the analogy was someone was singing the praises of Bernanke or whatever. And, you know, he saved the system and all this sort of nonsense. And I was like, come on, dude. It's like, it's like the drunken school bus driver who drives the bus off into the ditch. The bus overturns, catches on fire. There are, you know children trapped inside he manages to get all the children out and people are lauding him for his heroic efforts question who drove the freaking bus into the ditch in the first place i mean it is just it's just outrageous um and they're never held to account i I think i think you know for started with greenspan from greenspan to bernanke to yellen to Powell, probably missed somebody i mean the song remains the same how well how either jim or julian how would you respond to that yeah, can I just uh, say something about uh, Powell, uh, George? I think he's the schmuck that's going to take the hit for what Bernanke started in 2001. Uh, it goes back to that point when he basically, uh, after 9-11, took interest rates to 1%, which were the lowest that they'd ever been, uh, and then fueled the property bubble, which he blamed on the Chinese, but now we know that he fixed the actual research that he blamed it on the Chinese on. Um, 
And then he introduced quantitative easing, which is what he wanted to do to, for Japan. So he's actually done one thing, he's, he's ruined Japan. That's uh, another one in his, uh, his list. But he, he is the guy who uh, has caused all of these problems. And everybody listened to him because he was a student of the Great Depression. The unfortunate thing was that he didn't understand a single thing about the Great Depression. <laughs> and as a student of the Great Depression, what he managed to do was basically be uh, a student of Keynes. So print money, get governments to spend it, and everything will be okay. Well, I'm afraid for centuries we've known that that's absolutely wrong. And he's the guy. Uh, I mean, he should be in jail, and he should be in jail for the rest of his life. Jim, you've uh, you and I know going on way back, and you haven't you haven't changed at all. I love you. I couldn't agree with you more. I George, I, you more. If, if I want to just add, just completely it concurs with with Jim, but it's uh, it's an amusing little anecdote. Um, I was uh, at a um, at a meeting uh, where Coach Lakota spoke, the Minneapolis Fed president. It was a very very small meeting uh, up in Vale, and um, we. Uh, I asked him this question about you know QE and asset prices, and he sort of avoided it uh, while he was on stage. And then afterwards, it was one of those classic things where everyone's too embarrassed to speak to the speaker, you know, while you're having a drink afterwards. And I walked up to him and I, and I mentioned a. A, um, a mutual friend, and he completely opened up. And I said, well, okay, sir, well, would you mind answering the question? You know, if, if QE is just about liquidity at the front end and it doesn't influence asset prices, why is it that when you start it, asset prices rise? When you end it, they wobble, they fall. You know, explain this. And I am not joking, ladies and gents. His index finger came out and he started punching the air. And he said, it's Bernanke's fault. He started this idiocy and we have to keep going until we can't stop. Joe, are you serious? Yeah. How many, how, how many years ago was this? How many years ago was this? Um, this is probably six. Wow. Thank you for that, sir. All right. A couple, couple more Completely questions. Completely concurred with Jim. Completely concurred with Jim. All right. Let's do a couple more questions. And then we're going to – I'm not going to lie. I need more people on stage. Is everyone on stage that hasn't asked a question is going to be able to ask, but that's it. We're going to do oil. And then we're going to do uh, Glenn. Oil, what's up, man? Hey, guys. Great space. Thanks for having me. I was curious when this bloodbath truly starts, do you believe they're going to bring back the eviction freeze and multifamily and everything else? And also, what's to keep them from printing money again when all this shit goes to shit? Just my two questions for you guys. Anybody had thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, listen, I think ultimately, I mean, who knows where this is going to go? I, I, desperate people do desperate things. Um, so I wouldn't put anything past these guys. I don't know. Julian or Jim, you got any views on what they're likely to do uh, when this shit really hits the fan? I think they'll do what they did in the late 60s and they sacrificed the dollar. So, you know, I think we're going to hit this point of, of the impossible trinity, uh, which is the terminology for the inability to control the ability to only control two of three metrics. And I think at some point, if the pain gets sufficient um, and they're forced to look between the bond market, the equity market uh, and the dollar, um, they'll probably choose the bond market and the equity market. 
Um, those are the two logical ones to choose. And the net result will be, um, I think, a significant drop uh, in the dollar. But, yeah, I mean, it's going to take – you have to go through a lot of pain to get to that point because it's a very uh, unpleasant thing for them to do. Uh, but that's, that's where I suspect we're going to go, just like we did in the late 60s, which led ultimately to the collapse of Bretton Woods. And that will kick off, I think, the next big wave of the inflation story. But we're not there yet. Hey, gold, Julian, baby, gold, gold, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, gold. Should, this is for Julian and Jim. I mean, we all know the reasons why the dollar is doing what it's doing. I mean, it's been tough to call, but whatever. You know, cleaner shirt and a dirty laundry, debt deflation, all that stuff. But, um, well, all right, Julian um, and, and Jim, isn't the dollar pretty overvalued by most measures that you look at nowadays? To- totally, George. Yeah, uh, and I, I completely agree with Julian. I think that's what we'll give eventually. Unfortunately, I've been far too early on it. Um, the, 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 we've had a short on the dollar index. But uh, the, the biggest problem now is that most other central banks, I mean, you, I can't remember who it was mentioned earlier. Maybe it was uh, Tom uh, was talking about, hey, George, uh, you know, I think it was maybe Julian talking yeah. about the, the, the Sintra thing, uh, the meeting of uh, Bailey, Lagarde and uh, Powell. I mean, you, you couldn't get three bigger jokers together. Uh, and th- th- this is a big problem that what's going f- uh, to rise against the dollar? Because it certainly ain't sterling, and it most definitely isn't the euro. And that's the real issue for the Americans. That they, they, They've got themselves into this bind. They've got themselves into the problem of uh, how do you stimulate the economy after everything else doesn't work? Well, the dollar should fall. But what does it fall against? I mean, it possibly is emerging market currencies. It's certainly the, the renminbi. Uh, and uh, three aces will love it. It's definitely uh, commodity currencies, uh, the precious metals. But the the, the, the real is- the issue here is that the Bernanke sickness is right around the world in terms of uh, what, what he's done to central banking and to economic policy making. That they're they're all dire. Wow, just wow. Aces, any, uh, or Tommy, any uh, closing thoughts from you before we close this? No, thanks, George. Uh, absolutely another masterclass uh, of us spaces, and uh, hope everyone has a great long weekend and um, a safe holiday. Take care. And Tommy, I want to thank you again. Huge, I value our friendship and the public service you provide by uh, coming in these rooms to help everybody. Um, appreciated by all. You're one of the most popular speakers in these rooms. Must be your scintillating personality. I'm reliably informed that people like you more than they like me, but that's okay. I love you anyway. Um, And by the way, Tommy, I have no commercial relationship with uh, Hedge Fund Telemetry, but do follow Mr. Thornton, and I suggest you read a service every day, and uh, it's it's one of the best, best things you can get out there, and the price is unbelievable for what you get, so uh, reach out to Tommy if you're interested. Julian, I want to thank you for your contribution. It's brilliant um, and really wonderful that, I don't know what it is, it's the guys over in uh, the UK or Scotland, whatever, you guys always sound smarter. Maybe it's the accent. I don't know if you are smarter, but you're actually in the US now. I don't know if you are smarter, you certainly talk a good game, but I really, really thoroughly enjoy your your, your, your inputs, Julian. I'm glad you, you came into the room. And Dr. Jim, always a pleasure. This has been fantastic. Um, 
I hope we'll do this again before too long. I gave it a rest this past week, but you know, there's always who knows what we're going to talk about each week, each day, each week. Something crazy comes up. We're never sure of the face of this guy. You guys are like nuts. I mean, you guys, this room is only three hours long. My partner's telling me I got to limit these to two hours, but it's like I can't do that because there's too much good stuff to talk about. But don't worry, we'll do it again. All right, listen, Aces, thank you. Uh, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, everybody. This has been great. We'll do it again and uh, take care. Enjoy, enjoy the weekend. Bye bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, George. Bye bye.